of all the sickness that we have in the world mm-hmm. and especially the the western countries mm-hmm. of all the chronic diseases we're seeing it's not because they're eating too much kale like they're not eating too much fruit like right. like right like it, they're not eating enough fruits and vegetables that's 100% sure. All the things they're eating too much of, vegetables are not it, right? right? Fruits right. are not it. So if we're seeing people who are not um, co- like having enough conversion, like why not at least start there to see that, sure. right? Are they eating enough fresh fruits and vegetables? I am more concerned about the absorb- absorbability rate. And that's where, it, that's debatable. I know that animal proteins are 80 to 100% um, absorbable and then plant proteins are lower than that, but that's where people argue. Are plant protein sources enough to absorb uh, enough protein and then get enough for proper liver, liver nourishment. Shouldn't we consider the killing of the animal part of their suffering? Because like we, I think there's euphemisms used to make us feel better about the foods that we eat. Like, you know, um, it was ethically killed, ethically hunted. And so I feel better about the, the foods that I'm eating, but we would never say that we like ethically killed like anyone other than an animal. Sure. It just feels better when really that animal didn't want to die. Sure. You know what I'm saying? I think that we say these things now because of the of the pushback from from vegan activists who are like, well, this isn't ethical, and we're like, well, how do we find a solution where there there is a you know massive group of people that absolutely believe that they need that food in their lives, absolutely, and, and that's therefore... the whole question, exactly. Yeah. Hey guys, welcome to another episode. You are going to love this conversation my friend Corey and I had. If you followed me for any amount of time, you know that I advocate for and live a whole foods, plant-based vegan lifestyle. My friend Corey creates content online for her career as well, and she advocates for a way of eating which includes plants and animals like raw dairy, organ meats, grass-fed beef, and eggs, and is often called the pro-metabolic lifestyle. Corey and I have grown to become close friends over the last year, and I even got to be a birth support for her and document her VBAC home birth with her daughter, story born a few months ago. We naturally connect in many ways and we get along really organically. We also both really love challenging discussions, so we've privately had many conversations about nutrition and they're always fruitful. In this episode, we discuss navigating friendships with opposing views. We tackle nutrition, where we align, where we disagree and why, as well as ethics and planetary health. And you know, this is not like an all-encompassing full discussion on everything in nutrition. We actually didn't even get to like 1% of what we could have talked about. This is more about sharing how we converse when we disagree on a specific topic and how we handle it in a peaceful, respectful way. This conversation is not even close to encompassing the whole of our dietary perspectives. So please bear with us as we amateurs get into the weeds of science the best that we can. And overall, if you're interested in what we've shared today, you can check out our own content further. I love and respect Corey so much, so I want to give her mad props for coming into my space to publicly have this conversation. I think a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is to find someone who not only enjoys civil discourse and challenging discussions with opposing views, but someone who is also willing to have these types of discussions publicly online. Please share your thoughts in the comments, but be kind and civil and respectful to both of us involved. If it gets nasty towards either one of us, the chances of this type of episode happening again lessens. It's really difficult to get these types of conversations happening, and I really want to do more in the future, so please be kind. You can learn more about Corey on her Instagram at Corey Malloy or listen to her own podcast, The Freely Rooted Podcast. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Thank you so much, Corey, for being here. I am so excited to have this conversation today. And I know that we have like we really enjoy these conversations in person, but it's a whole other ball game doing it publicly. So yes. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yes, I am very excited to be here. Um, you mentioned it probably like 
I think two weeks ago, you're like, what do I, what do you think about this? And I was like, I, I feel nervous about that. Um, but let's talk about it. And, um, yeah, I'm just really excited to be here. So I just appreciate you having me. This is such an honor to be here and talking about this, um, these topics with you and, uh, just being able to do it in a respectful way. Totally. I mean, and that's how our conversations always go. So I just knew it would be like that here and it would just be the perfect conversation to have on here. Although there's other topics we could totally talk about too, which maybe we'll do yeah. in the future. Yeah. But so my first question for you is, did you have, it sounds like you did have any reservations coming on here today? And why don't you share with us like what those are? Yes. Um, yeah, I had a couple, I would say the first, which I feel like you and I actually really agree on is that food is just one tool in the toolbox. And I didn't want to like, I, I think this is a really hyper-focused, um, topic sometimes like the, the, the vegans versus like the carnivores, you know, and that being like, Oh, this is the reason you have all your problems and vice versa. Um, and I just think it's one tool in the toolbox and that, uh, so much more needs to be talked about, you know, in the discussion of health, but you and I discuss that all the time. And that's why you're the perfect person to be sitting here and talking, uh, with about this. And then the second reservation would, I guess, just the idea of, you know, I'm in your space, your uh, territory. And I've had a I've had experiences in the past where um, followers of yours have come to my page whenever you you've like reshared a story or something that had nothing to do with food. Um, I know one was like uh, me telling my birth story and you had reposted um, like one story slide and I like within a couple hours had to just block, block, block. And I'm not like a, a blocker. I, I really, I really, really appreciate the way that you are like this as well of just like not living in an echo chamber and really, um, being able to see different opinions, but the, the comments were just horrific and, um, I was not expecting it. I was really thrown off and I was like, am I just (laughs) entering into a space where this is going to happen again? And, but I just don't think that's, that's the case. I think that it's going to be a much different response, um, through the way that we're approaching it. Right. And we've talked about this before for anyone who's listening or watching this about like how I'm totally in agreement of how horrific that is. And I don't think that that's helpful, nor is that, I don't think that's helpful for the person, like not only not you, but it's not helpful for the person speaking in that Mm -hmm. way. Just like, um, name calling, jumping to conclusions. Like just to me, I find it so disingenuous and not helpful personally. Yes. Like just at all. And, and I think one of the most important things that I've written down here that we need to like address that's really crucial is understanding people's intentions behind things. So if anyone like came onto your page, obviously I was like so annoyed when you told me that like mm-hmm. earlier, like yeah. really? Cause obviously, I mean, and you know, that's not the majority of the people right. who are in either of our realms, either right. of our spaces, or let's, we're talking about my space con- specifically. Um, but there's going to be outliers and there's going to be, you know, differences on how people handle things. And I completely disagree with it. I think it's super important to realize people's intentions and that most people are doing what they think is best with the information they have. Mm-hmm. Um, like especially this is so crucial when navigating conversations like this and so a lot of people listening I'm sure are tuning in like okay they're really good friends how do they navigate this which we'll get into um but again even just like reiterating this I think it's super important to like um not assume that people who eat or advocate for eating animals are doing it for selfish reasons selfish Mm -hmm. intent or lack of empathy Mm -hmm. um we have to come from a place of trying to understand why people think the way that they do and that's Mm -hmm. what this conversation is all about Mm -hmm. yeah so okay so something else i really want to address too is that talking about my audience who's listening here that how vegans respond to this type of conversation is not even binary at all like on one of the spectrum there could be like ethical vegans who might even be 
the types of people that you're talking about who reached, who responded to you in that way, like name calling and stuff, who would be upset that I would even empathize with someone's like, um, feelings and, um, logic or mm-hmm. desire to thinking that they need this to be he- like animal foods to be healthy. And then there's other people on the other end of the spectrum who might be plant-based or not plant-based at all. Um, and thinking like, what is the big deal? Why are we, <laughs> why are you making this a big deal? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It's just food type thing. So that is super important going into the conversation too, that so many different people are coming in with different life experiences, different sets of worldviews. And that's why I think this conversation is so fascinating. So, okay, you are, you already covered the type of messages that you receive. Mm-hmm. Oh no, wait, no, I was going to ask you, this is where we're going in next. Okay. The type of messages that you often receive when people like find out that you have a lot of vegans in your circle of friends. Oh yes. Um, well I think complete confusion, first of all, mm-hmm. um, I, I still get messages every single week, even though I haven't like, it's not like I'm posting that we're friends all the time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll get messages, I'll get emails, um, a lot of people very curious, but I think just being, I think they're just like truly confused of just like, how would this work? Um, I've had a few messages going like, do you guys just like argue all day long? And I'm like, what? Um, Can you just imagine we're like sitting on the yes. beach with all our kids like surfing and we're just arguing with each other? Yes, yes. And some, there are, there are a few times where I actually reply to the messages because I, I want to have an opportunity to be like, hey, like this, you can have relationship with people that you disagree with like that is the that is humanity like that is humanity and that's how you grow and you learn from each other and how boring would that be to like live in an echo chamber where you only you know uh surround yourself with people that think exactly like you because honestly I don't know anybody that thinks exactly like me I would be by myself totally my my husband even we disagree on plenty of things same here same so I think maybe people are thinking that because I have a platform um, on health and you have a platform on health that like the food part of the health is like all we talk about and all we think about. And it's just not the case. You and I agree on so much, so like, many things, an insane amount of things. And we, our husbands have to pry each other away from each other. Um, whenever, time we yes, just like, let's go, like, let's leave. Like, like wait, never, just five hours. more minutes, five more minutes. I know. I'm like, I'm, I'm coming. I'm like, <laughs> 30 minutes later, I'm like, oh yeah. Uh, oh wait, I really need to go. Yeah. And then, and then continuing even more. So like Ellen and I like can't stop talking about the things that we are, uh, equally passionate about. And, and even the things we disagree about. Sometimes exactly. it pops up like, Hey, I was listening to your episode. I found this super, cause I listened to your podcast episode Yes, or to your podcast. And I'm like, I found this part really interesting. Like I totally resonate with this, this part. I'm not sure. What are your thoughts on this? You yes. know, we just, go back and forth but yes it's true I think a lot of people assume that like all we are talking about must be about what we disagree on and like or about food when that just simply is not the case we're talking about parenting Mm -hmm. I don't know we just naturally connect on so many levels and personality plays a huge role because something really interesting is that you could I could come across someone who is vegan and have like that feel like there's nothing in common and have Mm -hmm. very little like inclination or desire to like keep a conversation going or like just don't naturally gravitate towards that. And you could have the same thing for someone who lives in the way that you do. Mm-hmm. And you could have become friends with someone who has completely different views on many things and you naturally just click in so many ways. And that isn't always the case for a lot of people. I think a lot of people um, like struggle. First, first there's like this thing embedded into our modern culture. I think that you need to only be friends with people who, who agree with you on right. things, but there's so many other factors on what makes a good friend and list. And I think like listening to each other's perspective, mm-hmm. which I was actually going to ask you. So what do you think makes a relationship like ours thrive? Oh, wow. Um, oh, with you and me, I think yeah. that, um, first off we have our brains are like 
I feel like made from very similar matter. Like I we'll, like we'll be talking to each other and, and we're like, well, that's exactly like that's exactly what I was thinking. It's and actually like, insane to me. It's very insane, and um, I think that that has played a huge role in how we have conversations with each with, with each other because they're so like entertaining for us and so life giving because we're like having a conversation with with ourselves. <laughs> but it's just so it's it's very enjoyable to have respectful conversations and also um both of both you and I are big communicators like mm. communication yes is so important to both of us in relationships period and the most important thing to both of us because we've we've uh found this out about each other is um honesty uh and open communication like that being like the most important thing and so because we value that in each other we are a safe place for each other yes and therefore whatever we disagree on we're we're always going to be able to be honest and be a safe place for each other um and i think that is that makes people very um uncomfortable i think that there's a lot of people that don't like that aren't like that and they would rather have someone like just on their side and that's mm-hmm. what makes them feel safe in a relationship or like not judging them and that makes that's that's what makes people feel safe and because ellen and i like um, value a lot of the same things. I think it makes conversation so safe. Well, and also there's the aspect of we aren't judging each other. Yes. We're, the goal is how, how to best understand each other's, like why, why we think the way that we do. Exactly. Whereas you're right, it is easier and, and really fun sometimes, you know, and a lot of times to have friends that like agree with you on these topics you're really passionate about, of course. Yes. But I, I think because we're both like Enneagram eights, which I talked about, we talked about the Enneagram in my last episode, um, that plays a role into like, I guess I kind of like thrive on conversations with controversial mm-hmm. ideas. My mm-hmm. friend Josefa and Danielle sent me this screenshot of like a deep dive into the Enneagram eights. And it was like, one of the things was like, we'll ask, um, uh, hard questions and like uncomfortable questions just to see how people react to see if they're squirmish, yes. like yes. How, if they get squirmish. Yes. And I'm like, whoa, I am like that. Yes. Like I really just, I, I like to see people squirm sometimes yeah. because it's, it's, it's fun, but also, also because it's such a friendly environment and I don't think yes. people are realizing like how friendly it is yes. when, when those questions are asked and the goal of those questions behind the fun of it is really just to understand somebody. Yes. And, and a lot of people don't have that perspective yes and maybe their childhood experiences told them otherwise that if they disagreed with someone that they got shunned or um if you stood out like even maybe with your parents if you Mm -hmm. if you said something you disagreed with with your parents if they shunned you or gave you some kind of punishment whether that was like um what's the word like passive aggressive Mm -hmm. disrespect or something Mm -hmm. like that that shapes how people know how to have conversations or not because i do have some friends that really don't enjoy discussions with differing opinions like anxiety can Mm -hmm. can you know start coming up and then it's not fun it's obviously only fun if someone really enjoys the conversation that's probably why we naturally gravitate toward each other exactly so you feel like the anxiety is almost like more of like a trauma response sometimes maybe or maybe part of its personality yeah and maybe it's just harder for like someone like us to relate to it yeah because of our personality maybe it's both maybe it has to do a little bit about personality but how much of your personality is from what you were nurtured as exactly i don't know exactly and i like just to add one more thing to that thought, um, I like that you were talking about um, just the idea of welcoming uh, questions that are the heart behind it is to get to know somebody because I feel like that that alone can be threatening for people because they don't want to be, they feel vulnerable, I guess, um, when someone is like really actually pursuing them and that's the actual 
intent. I think somebody can take the intent as like, what do you want to know? Like, what do you, you know, like, are you trying to catch me in something or, mm-hmm. or something like that? As opposed to like, oh no, I, I just want to know you. I want to love you. Like that's, that's you. And, um, so if you're not ready for it, you know, like if you're totally. not ready for that in your life, then yeah, I could see how it would make you uncomfortable to have these kind of conversations. Yeah. And I didn't realize that I was on this like far extreme end of the, the spectrum, uh-huh. like when it comes to this experience until maybe in the last few years as I was becoming closer with like Josefa who wasn't used to this she's like wait what are you doing why are you bringing this up and I'm like I just want to have a conversation what's the big deal she's like no I don't know and I'm like I love you no matter what you think I'm just curious like why you think the way that you do and then over time she's like okay I understand you now and now Mm -hmm. she really enjoys that Mm -hmm. with me and then when we became like made friends with someone new had like a girl's night I'm asking a question and they're like wait what and Jose was like, mm-hmm. but it's just the way she is. Like, just, 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 just relax. Like, yes. she likes you. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Anyways, I mean, we could go on and on. Oh, something else I wanted to say was, um, I think it's probably interesting for people too, because we both are, like you said, advocating for different ways of eating, mm-hmm. right? And I had said this to you before, like when we were first becoming closer, like I've had, I have many friends who aren't vegan. I have friends who used to eat plant-based that no longer anymore, but I've never had a friend to my recollection, who advocated for, like actively advocated for a way of eating that wasn't vegan. Because I've had, you know, pretty much most all my friends, I don't know, up until maybe in the last couple years or so, would be very like, I know that the way you're eating is like so healthy. I just, I don't have it in me. Or like, I just don't know if I could do it. Or like, I just don't think like I did very well that way. But I know that the way you guys are eating is so good and your family's thriving and stuff like that. But then when it came to this, it was like, oh, like, you're like actively advocating for a different Mm. way of eating. So that was like, that was a different space for me, but I still like totally found it compelling. And that's why I was like, come over for a girl's night. Let's like get into this. Yes. And oftentimes we just don't even have the time to get really too into it because I think these types of conversations do require undivided attention, which Mm -hmm. we don't often have with all the kids. Very rare. Yeah. So if we do find a moment when we're alone, like walking away from somewhere, we'll like dabble. But we've only really had like deep conversations about what we really disagree on like a couple of times when Mm -hmm. we were alone for like a period of time, a, Mm -hmm. a significant period of time. So that's to put to rest anyone confused on how we yes. <laughs> handle. Yeah, just basically respectful conversation. And I also, to add to what you just said, I just really respected the way that you were honest whenever I had moved here and you were like, and you were like, yeah, this is how I felt. And I was like, oh my gosh, that takes so much, um, I think, humility to be mm-hmm. like, this was interesting to me to navigate. Mm-hmm. Like here's somebody advocating for a different way of eating. And it was just, it was just interesting. And like, I just thought it was, it, it just took so much humility for you to say that, which tells you how, um, grounded and, and confident mm. you are as a woman. And that's somebody I, that's something I really respect about you. And that's probably why we got close together because yes. you, cause you're like a question asker. You're like literally made for podcasting. I think you're <laughs> so good at questioning everyone. Thank you actually, when I first met you, I was like, wow, you ask a lot of questions, yes. <laughs> like getting to know, like so good at asking questions. You put it on other people cause you want to learn about them. Yes. So I also think that maybe you're on, cause it's surprising that I don't think I really get emails like that, that you get mm-hmm. of people being like, why are you friends with someone who's not being, and I don't get emails like that, which is kind of surprising to me. I kind of would imagine it be the other way around. Right. Um, since there's a lot of like conviction within eating vegan, I guess yes. I do get questions of like, do you have friends who are not vegan, but nothing like specifically pertaining to us that I've noticed, but maybe I just don't see yes. all, like, I don't see all my messages. That's for sure. Um, but I think maybe you're getting more questions about that because everyone pretty much knows that there is like it veganism is like the only diet that there's like a conviction aspect Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. more than just your health like exactly 
not not everybody who eats plant-based obviously there's people who just eat plant-based for their health but people who are vegan and ethical vegans like there's a conviction morality behind it Mm -hmm. about the animals and so i think they probably ask you like how do you not feel judged by people Mm. who are vegan because you're advocating to eat animals well like and i think people maybe don't realize that like your friends in this space like all of our friends who are vegan like that's just not how they operate. They aren't thinking like that towards you. They're, they're, if anything, still interested in hearing your perspective. Yes. And I was also thinking of at my um, mother's blessing. You guys threw like a mother's blessing for me before I before I gave birth. And our friend Danielle was like, I would even, I, I would even, I would even bring you like uh, a meal with animal food in it. And people were like, what? I know. I was like, you would? <laughs> I wouldn't. She was, she was like, maybe I wouldn't. But like, but that's the love and the respect. She was just showing. Yes. And I was like, like I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I was like, I would just bring you like a pro-metabolic vegan. Like yes. I tried, which is what I did. I told you myself, totally I was like, did. I want to try to make her pro-metabolic way of eating like vegan as yes. like see if I can do that. But yes. <laughs> you totally so did. true. Okay, so let's get into it then. Can you share people who don't know like what you specifically advocate for? Like what is like your way of eating and living that you that you teach and and tell people about? Yeah, so essentially my like philosophy, um, definitely not original to me. There are many amazing people that have walked before me that I um, have strived to learn from. Um, but essentially it is all about optimizing the metabolism. And so the metabolism, not to get too heady, I'll, I'll keep it like simple. It is the function of your body. And so um, your metabolism describes basically like uh, you know, if it's describing the function of your body, you're describing detoxification and hormone balance and, um, you know, cell renewal and your ability to be resistant to stress. It's because it's the health of basically your cell and our entire body is, is made of cells. And so, um, to describe this in a way that people will probably like resonate with, I think it's helpful to describe the opposite of that. And there was this man named Raymond Earl. And in the 1920s, he came out with this rate of living theory. And his theory is that we have like, a um a max amount of heartbeats in our body if you can like imagine like a ticking time bomb to like reach that last heartbeat and then you die um and so he came up with a theory that if we slow down our entire body we are increasing like um life you know um and longevity but what he is kind of like missing as far as that picture is to slow down your body you're you're slowing down every cell process of your body and so you're slowing down um gut motility and the ability to heal like your wounds to heal and so everything is slowing down however there were a lot of health um crazes and i guess philosophies that were birthed from that idea and so like some of them not to trigger anybody but like cold therapy intermittent fasting um, fat as fuel instead of glucose as fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of popular crazes that came from that with not realizing that that was kind of like the, the basis of, of why these things came about. And a lot of them are still popular today. Um, and so it kind of comes back to, uh, basically the opposite of that. And there were, uh, a couple people like Dr. Broda Barnes and Dr. Ray Pete who were finding that, um, metabolism and the function of your body is basically the root of all dysfunction because the better that your body is functioning, um, the more in line and in balance that it can be. And so for example, if your liver detoxification is slowed down, you're not able to detox estrogen. And so you, you, you're like basically creating estrogen dominance in your body. Um, and therefore the ratio of estrogen to progesterone 
um, is off. And so, and this can go, can go on and on. You guys can probably understand that are listening what all this would impact, but to optimize the metabolism is basically just, you know, studying the physiology of the body. What does the cell need? Um, and a lot of things Ellen and I like totally agree on, on these, on these subjects, you know, um, not restricting carbs because your body runs on glucose and, you know, understanding the hormone impact of restricting carbs because that's what your body prefers. So it's basically just studying the physiology of what your body prefers and then um, for it to thrive and then basically making food choices, lifestyle choices from there. But essentially it's like a balance of energy and stress. And so it's taking as much stress off of the body as possible so you can optimize your energy production. Yeah, because I mean, you're right there where how the body stress is, is huge on the body. Mm-hmm. Stress takes a huge toll on your body. It's like um, the two most taxing things we do on our body is digesting food and digesting stress. Yes. So like learning how to live a lifestyle that's going to be lowered in stress, not like we can um, minimize it completely, mm-hmm. but supporting our body nutritionally so that we can better handle stress when it does come our way. Like we're, we're on the same page with so much of that. And actually, I think a lot of people might assume that we're like completely opposite of it in opinions. And while the title of this episode is vegan versus animal foods you are not a carnivore you're not Mm -hmm. like advocating for carnivore Mm -hmm. um and there's so much that we align with which we're gonna get into and we're gonna kind of share for those listening and watching like what we agree on and finding common ground before we move forward and kind of dissect where we kind of go different ways Mm -hmm. and for those of you who are watching probably already know but maybe not that I advocate for whole plant foods I am all about eating living more in line with nature and yes of course like carb rich foods whole plants um, from fruits and sweet potatoes and whole grains and all that stuff Um, lots of fresh greens legumes and that's that's the way that I advocate for and it's definitely improved my health anecdotally (laughs) right significantly and I've been eating this way for 15 years and I will never be going back and I'm sure and you also have your own um like stories as well so there we have where you have like our different ways of eating and now let's align oh before I get into that too we just want to say too that like neither of us are experts in the field of Mm -hmm. like science Mm -hmm. (laughs) right in nutrition Mm -hmm. we're coming from what we've learned with our own research and I think this is a perfect like perfectly matched conversation because we come from the same like way of navigating the topic right as opposed to like if you were to sit down with like a plant-based doctor and Mm -hmm. dissecting science that way or me vice versa Mm -hmm. so i think this is the perfect conversation for us to have we're we're the right we're the right people to be having this like conversation yes and i also think that's like one of the main like yeah reservations on coming on is just like well i'm not an expert on like who, who am i to like be the authority on these but that's why we like are the perfect match for each other because both of us are lifelong learners like mm. i feel like that we have yeah. both like made it our our goal to do that and so how do you have a conversation not necessarily being experts but being learners of of totally. what we have out there totally yes I, I think that's super super important um okay so let's start with where we find common common ground and discuss like let's bring the discussion together i, I wrote a list of the things that I think we have the most common ground on and I'm going to, I'm going to go first on what I love that you promote and then you can kind of go the other way. Does that sound good? Perfect. So I like how you promote against like process oils. Mm -hmm. And I know that you generally use like the broader umbrella of, of PUFAs and that Mm -hmm. means more than just process oils. But, but that's one thing that, that we'll get into later. But specifically, I love that, that you are advocating against that as like a significant calorie source. Yes. And then Another thing, just that ultra processed foods are not health promoting. We're on the same page there. Um, And the promotion of fruit in abundance, like you said earlier, and whole plant carbs, like from sweet potatoes to 
fuel our body and that the body and the brain run on glucose and that's going to help us with our energy Mm -hmm. um, to sustain us. And I like that you promote sourdough bread and fermented foods. Mm. I think that that's awesome. Fully on the page there. To my knowledge, you have a problem with factory farming, right? Absolutely. So we're on the same page there. We'll get we'll get into the ethical aspect. Um, well, actually I should tell people once I finish this, I'll tell people like the plan for the conversation. <laughs> okay. We got so much to cover. <laughs> um, I love how you promote healing from the inside out and mm-hmm. not fad dieting or diet culture, mm-hmm. like extreme dieting, restrictive diets. Cause we're both in agreement on like abundance mm-hmm. eating till you're totally satisfied eating mm-hmm. like a woman, not like a toddler. Yes. I'm fully there. I think one of the main reasons that a lot of people don't do well on plant-based eating is they're not eating enough calories mm. it's specifically from whole plant sources but in general um that um yes yeah, so not calorie restrict i like how you promote eating at night even hmm. if you're hungry before bed that yeah. was interesting to me and not something that i hear many people discussing yes but i i love that that it's just not like it about just restricting your calories like eat when your body's telling you that you're hungry mm-hmm. so love that um limiting stress in your life getting significant or sufficient sunshine not obsessing over fats, carbs, and protein, but just having a healthy balance. Mm-hmm. I've definitely had in the past been like, oh, it's more about this. We need to have more of this. And I'm sure you have in the past as well. Just mm-hmm. look at all the things that are taught, sent our way. Um, we're on the same page even about like workouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, about, you know, a few times a week, mm-hmm. weight resistance. Mm-hmm. You do not need to kill yourself over the, <laughs> no. the running machines. You don't yes. need to be working out every day. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in a place where you're having to work out every single day to maintain your optimal weight, like that's not the place you mm-hmm. want to be in. It shouldn't mm-hmm. be that hard. Um, and just like things like super high fat keto not being optimal. I loved your episode on breaking down popular diets. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there was a lot that, that was one where I texted you after. I was like, I sent you a voice message. Okay, this is where I agree. I really like that you said this. Yes. Obviously, we don't align with this part, but, yes. <laughs> you know. But you had like overwhelmingly positive. It's all positive, by the way. It's all positive. Even mm-hmm. if she's giving like, hey, here are my thoughts on this. Like, it's still always positive and like friendly. Um, but yes, we, so much of like fuel, um, as far as like foundational things, we totally agree on that whole list was, was epic. And also, um, if I could add to it, even just like the kind of water that we drink Mm -hmm. and understanding like proper, uh, filtration, remineralizing, um, we both have like a huge emphasis on minerals. I feel like for sure. Um, yeah, you actually got me onto pristine hydro. Awesome. Love it. We yes. love the water system, it's which I'll put incredible. a link below for anyone below who's interested in checking it out. And you actually went to their headquarters, right? Yeah. Yes. I got to meet them, the, one of the owners. Yes. Super cool. I think another one would be, um, you may have already said the whole like nature thing, like being outside, um, syncing up your circadian rhythm mm-hmm. and like getting the right kind of light, you know, exposed to your skin and your eyeballs and like you know, not staying up till 1am looking at blue lights. For sure. That's, it's the, a lot of the foundational things, like we were just in total agreement. And that's like a huge one. Like you could be mm -hmm. eating a really well-planned diet, but if you're going to bed at 2am every morning and looking at like the screens and not getting adequate cycles of getting in the outside and getting sun and I'm going to bed at a reasonable hour when your body's telling you to go to sleep. Like, yeah, yes, that's going to affect a lot. <laughs> that was actually one of the first things I, somebody had like poked fun at you, um, in our friend group. They're like, Oh, Ellen's a grandma. She goes to bed early. And I'm like, that's I, she does actually when she goes to bed at like a really reasonable hour. And like, it's like amazing for hormone production. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense why you're a grandma. Yeah. You're like, I'm a grandma too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the same way. Okay. So 
I should probably preface the rest of how we want to do the episode. So we got through what we agree on. Then we're also going to break down where we disagree mm-hmm. and just unfold each topic. We're going to cover nutrition first, and then we're going to go to the ethics and planetary a little bit. We'll mm-hmm. just dabble a little bit mm-hmm. towards the end. But the the nutrition part is where we're where we're really going to unpack things, and I'm sure is where people want to want to hear us <laughs> and discussing. I, I feel like as we unpack it. And I was telling her this yesterday. I was like, I feel like as we unpack this, these, we will find even more common ground of things mm. of like, oh, actually, we're on the same exact page about that, you know, totally. or slightly, you know, slightly. But, but at least being able to see. And that's the goal is being able to see uh, eye to eye, finding the middle ground and seeing where we agree. Right. Exactly. For sure. So the, before we get into that, then let's just talk about the fundamental place where we go separate ways. Yes. So for you, you advocate for like significant animal food consumption. Whereas I advocate for like more high calorie whole plant foods mm-hmm. and, you know, like greens, um, legumes, <clears throat> um, root vegetables. <laughs> I <throat> <clears throat> don't know what's happening there. <laughs> I read a lot of storybooks to just go out scout this morning. <laughs> Too much reading. Um, healthy fats like avocado, po- uh, coconut, pumpkin seeds, flax, chia, um, and as well to eat a lot of dark leafy greens. So that's where, where I, that's where we part ways. So firstly... Let's start with my first question to you. I think we'll kind of go back and forth where with each topic, like you can answer first and the mm-hmm. next one I'll answer first and then we respond. Oh, great. That's not good. Yeah. Okay. Which we didn't talk about before. So animal foods, first question for you. Do you think that they're a necessary part of a healthy diet and can you do the pro-metabolic lifestyle in a vegan way? Both of these are fantastic questions. I would say the first question is obviously one of the most popular questions that you see in this world. Um, and a couple of like the popular criticisms I'm going to list um i think that they're debatable i think that there's going to be like some back and forth of like oh no like you're wrong about this statistic and this is what i think about this statistic um and then i'll get to my most important one at the at the end but obviously the first one would be um the uh i i i'm laughing at the idea of saying this word but protein i feel like that's something that people like eye roll at if they are plant-based because they're like oh you think that there's no protein in in plant in plants (laughs) absolutely there's protein in plants i am more concerned about the absorb absorbability rate and that's where it that's debatable i know that animal proteins are 80 to 100 percent um absorbable and then plant proteins are lower than that but that's where people argue is it 50 to 60 is it 60 to 70 i don't want to get into the weeds of that but um, i think the most important thing to me is that someone is getting enough protein and um, one of the more important but less talked about reasons for that is to fuel the the liver and the liver is like one of the powerhouses of the body because that's where you are um, able to basically take care of hormone balance because again what I was talking about earlier with estrogen dominance and um, the liver just has so many functions and from my understanding based on the information I have right now um, and especially from a man named Dr. Ray Pete is that a minimum of 80 grams of you know absorbable protein is what we're going for and then of course if you have a higher metabolic rate you want higher protein than that if you have a lower metabolic rate you know, um, well, 80 still being the minimum, but 80 to hundred, if it's like a lower metabolic rate. And, um, but of course people are going to have different opinions on that. And that would be kind of just like my first point is like, are plant protein sources enough to absorb, uh, enough protein and then get enough for proper liver, liver nourishment. And then the second one would be obviously, um, speaking of absorbability, it would also be the bioavailability of the nutrients involved. And Elle and I are on the same page of just like, um, you know, our, your, your plants are only as mineral and nutrient rich, rich as the soil. And we're both like on the same page about like your soil is so important and the health of your soil is so important. And it's one of the reasons I'm, you know, 
big ag and factory farming like have created a major problem for us, but um, the uh, bioavailability of nutrients um, would be something that I would be concerned about and possibly criticize, you know, like, but I would be open to a discussion about it. Um, there are a couple nutrients that I would look for to, um, that I don't know if are as bioavailable in a plant-based diet. Uh, B12 is like a common one, of course. There's choline, um, taurine, glycine, and then a big one would be retinol, which we can talk about in a second. Yeah, we'll go into yes. another question. And um, I guess and zinc would be another one as well. Plant-based diets get criticized for iron, but I also want to talk about iron in a second as well. I don't think that we are deficient in iron as a as a as a global um, issue. There was an iron fortification program after World War II where iron became one of the most abundant minerals in everything, just everything. And then if a lot of us, if we were eating processed junk in the 90s, then we were exposed to a lot of iron fortified foods. Um, if we weren't taking a whole food uh, prenatal, then we would have had iron in that iron supplements, multivitamins, a lot of these, it's, it's, if we were ever on birth control, big hit of iron, a lot of us are not deficient in iron. Um, but I will explain the iron situation in a second. But basically, uh, essentially, if a plant-based diet is not meeting these through food, then what do people look for after that? They'll be like, okay, well, I can at least supplement this without contributing to the death of an animal. Like, would you say that that's kind of like a, a logical step, I guess, if someone's not meeting the nutrient needs from from plant-based right that's like a whole a whole thing like it, the que that's the question if you can't eat this way to be healthy then you can't expect people really to to do it. i mean there's going to be some people who are ethical vegans be like no matter what we do this yeah but most people are going to be like we do this you know for the animals and the planet and also we know that we can do it because because we, we could be healthy yes so my question to you would be like is there data showing that vegans are protein deficient that they're not getting enough protein. I, I, I'm, I mean, I, I, I don't know about the data that's showing like this or that. I think data is where it gets a little muddy because, um, we're not able, it's very hard to study that specific topic. Um, but Why as far as so? the, I think it's, I think it's extreme. Well, I think diets in general are hard to have in a controlled, um, environment where you're looking for, excuse me, studying diets in a controlled environment where you're looking for the function of certain organs, I guess. And so, um, well, you would want to look at like vegan populations and see if they have deficiencies in things like colon or choline. And like, we, we just don't see that from looking at vegan populations together. So like talking about like the amount of grams that we need as, um, like a protein that we need and, and going over the whole, if protein is less bioavailable, mm -hmm. the question really should be, okay, being a little bit less bioavailable, but do we need as much as that exactly. as the animal foods have? That's the question is what do we need to thrive? Exactly. And so the best way to answer that, I think, is to look at vegan populations and you test their their levels yes. of things like vitamin A and choline and stuff. And we're just not seeing like lower levels of that. For sure. So there's no, like, to me, there's not evidence that like you can't get the adequate protein or that it's even hard to get the adequate protein sure. on a vegan diet. Because if you're eating legumes and just a wide variety of plant foods really like right. if you're eating an only grain diet okay that's not going to be healthy and for a wide variety of reasons but if you're eating a wide variety of plant food plant foods and you're getting beans in your diet lentils a wide variety of it like you should have no problem getting sufficient protein sure yeah so this is this is going to be a topic where you'll have people back and forth going well what about this and what about this and what about this study and i think that's when you can just look at yourself and be like hey Am I, am I thriving? Do I have sufficient levels of this, this, and this? And if not, like if not, so hypothetically, 
if it's not the case, if you're deficient in zinc, for example, um, cause that's just a, it's a popular one. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, you probably have different thoughts on like, well, you know, were they eating this, this, and this, you know, if they were deficient in zinc, um, and have a lot of different, uh, you know, like discussions you can go down there. But if someone is deficient in a certain, um, mineral, for example, so like zinc being one of them, um, we can look to nature to see if it's, if it's going to be beneficial for us to take it in an, in an isolated form, basically. So on the topic of supplementation, and this is a whole yeah. thing that we don't need to go like down, but essentially nature is obviously that like, and we totally agree on this. Like nature is the smartest thing when it comes to like how are foods actually like, like working together. And if you think of, um, a cherry, for example, cherry is like a fantastic source of vitamin C. Why is it a source of vitamin C? Because of everything, all the cofactors with the vitamin C that work together. So we're able to utilize the vitamin C in our bodies, um, bioavailable copper. Um, and like I said, the cofactors. So if we think we can just strip off the shell of the vitamin C, which is absorbic acid and just take absorbic acid and have no consequence to the body, we're fooling ourselves because it would have to come from our own reserves. And so when it comes to minerals, um, if we are, if we are deficient, then it poses my question to that is, um, the long-term effects of if you do take a supplement, understanding that if you take zinc, for example, which works with copper, you're pulling from your own copper reserves to be able to sustain that zinc in the body. And well, I guess unless we looked, you're taking like a zinc copper combination. Well, and, but both of those being isolated minerals, they need both the right. cofactors that are found in the whole food source. And so I think it's interesting whenever you look at nature, because not only are plants are perfect example of how things work together, like the cherry, but also animal foods being another one, like oysters and liver, all of these contain those same like buddies, as you can see, like the, the cofactors and the other, everything that works together to make it work in the body. We can see them equally in plants and animal foods and animal foods are a more bioavailable source of that. And so, um, I think that that is an important conversation to have. Now, am I saying you're going to be deficient in zinc? And therefore you're gonna have a problem. No, I can't say that. Who, who right. am I to say that you would be deficient right. in something? And you guys take amazing care of your soil and locally source a lot of things. And these are, I mean, the land is very lush here. And so that would be, um, it's debated. I mean, it's, it's debatable. Yeah, well, that's why like we could go on, like on and on, right? About, or listen to scientists and doctors talk about the bioavailability, bioavailability of different plants. But at the end of the day, I feel like the best, like I'm gonna go back to the best way to tell is if you look at vegan populations and see mm. if they're deficient in those things. Yes. And if they're not, then maybe if they're less bioavailable or that they are less bioavailable than like animal foods, maybe we don't need as much as we think as like you might be inclined to think like, oh, look, there's more of this, but more isn't always better, right? The dose sure. is what makes the poison yes. of what we need and what we exactly. don't need. Because if you isolate a certain vitamin or and give it to them in like a study, right? If you're getting too much. So I'm going to give example of like oxygen. Like if you give someone 100% pure oxygen, and like, that's not going to do well for them. Cause like oxygen in nature is only 20% oxygen because mm-hmm. we're not supposed to be having so much. So that's why I don't know if that argument is the best argument to decide whether like eating plants is sufficient. I think the best way to look at it is like through studies of, totally. of human populations. And so if you can say that, like, if we see the vegan populations not being deficient in something like choline and vitamin A, like, would that mean that in your eyes that you could do it healthily? 
that everyone could do it? Well, I guess we'll go down to that later, okay. right? Okay. okay. So, so that's, like if I, they're eating a well-planned diet and that goes for even like pro-metabolic eating, like you could eat a not, a not well-planned way of it. Right. If someone's sure. like, oh, I was deficient in these things. And you'd be like, well, wait, what were you eating? Right. Well, I was eating pro-metabolic. Right. right. That's the same thing for vegan. Right. There's like a million different ways to eat vegan. You shouldn't have a problem in my opinion, especially if you're eating enough calories because the most, the more bites of food that you eat from whole plant foods, the more nutrition you're getting in your body. So, and then, well, so going back to like going off of that, going back to my last point, that is where my question is in, uh, vitamin A. So, and we, I think we'll talk about let's vitamin see. A like later. Let's do that. Like a few, let's go that a few questions down, but so but yeah. just cap it for now. Yeah. Do you, okay. if it's about vitamin A, should we just wait till we get to that question? Well, maybe I'll just state it, okay, which go. is that go. I, I don't know. So retinol is going to be like real vitamin A. And then there is the vitamin A that comes from, uh, plants. It's converted into retinol in your body. Um, and we can talk about is the conversion rate sufficient, especially with the stress of, uh, hypothyroidism like the basically the state of the world right now are we are we capable of of converting beta carotene to to retinol basically should we just do that one now then uh sure do the one about vitamin a yeah i'm like oh fine we got our notes man we come with we come with notes Um, okay, let's do that. And then we'll just come back to the next question, which would be like saturated fat. So I'll just go first on that then on beta carotene. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sound good. Okay. So the question is like, can we get sufficient vitamin A if we don't consume vitamin A directly, right? Uh, like, because we're eating beta carotene from plants. Yes, because our understanding of vitamin A, and I learned this in nutrition school in, uh, excuse me, in a nutrition class in college was we will convert the exact amount of beta carotene that we need into retinol. You don't need it from animal foods because vitamin A toxicity and like, we just like, that was like pretty much the end of, the, of discussion. Right. it's more in depth than that. Definitely, For yes. sure. But I'm going to go back to the same thing of looking at Western cohorts of like vegan populations and see if they across the board are showing vitamin A deficiency. And we're just not seeing that at all. So to me, that says it is converting properly. And I can I'll say these studies in a minute so we can put we're going to put a few studies on the screen for the ones that we both bring up. So a lot of people bring up like the BMO1 gene. Yes. Being like, you know, people talk about these convergent issues like beta beta carotene Mm -hmm. and choline and talking about how different people can convert it well, which is true. There's a percentage of it, like I think it's like 50%. I think earlier you had told me in a conversation you thought like 90% of people can't convert beta carotene. Not period. But yeah, so do you think it's more like a dial or is it like a all or nothing thing? Oh, I don't think it's all or nothing. I think we each have our own different conversion rate based on our stress. Right. So some people are going to have an an easier time converting beta carotene to vitamin A. Whereas other people who have maybe a little bit difficult, a little bit more difficult time, they just need to eat more plants that are rich in beta carotene. And that, and because that should sufficiently, especially knowing what the data is showing that like vegans are not having trouble converting and we're not seeing a vitamin A deficiency in vegans then so long as you're eating a wide variety of plants, it shouldn't be a problem. Because I feel like in order to say that plants, eating plants isn't sufficient, mm. then then we need to be seeing at least data that like, oh, a large portion of vegans are like struggling to get enough vitamin A. Sure. But, and, and just aren't converting it well. But we're just not seeing that. So to me, all that we can muddle, we can go back and forth on like the gene and how like there's, you know, different people on have a spectrum. Some people can only convert it 40% or 50%. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if we're not seeing it in the studies that they're that they're struggling to, to convert it properly, then maybe it's not as huge, huge of an issue as like the animal-based world is making it. Does yeah. that make sense? So, oh wait, were you done? Well, I was gonna say like, we would we would see more vitamin A deficiency diseases, right? Because we really only see vitamin A deficiency diseases in places like Africa and Southeast Asia where 
Well, what do you define as a vitamin A deficiency d- disease? Well, that would be like night blindness, infertility okay. being a thing. Are you, sure. So you're saying that there'd be a much lo- lower level. No, what I'm saying is a vitamin A deficiency, de- sorry, de- <laughs> deficiency um, manifests itself in so many different things prior to like, that would be like prior the to most getting extreme. To- Basically, your level of stress is going to dictate your ability to make that to make that conversion. And yeah. so I think as equally as important, you want to see the stress of the lifestyle of the people that are making the optimal conversion. Vitamin A deficiency, what it manifests itself as is hypothyroidism and high cholesterol actually. And so as a slew and a slew of other things, but, um, basically with a vitamin A, um, conversion, so conversion from beta carotene to retinol, there are four main things that slow down the conversion, um, or reduce it. And maybe I'll like just list resources in the air yeah. or like, you know. Um, okay, so hypothyroidism would be one. Um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking right now. Hypothyroidism, it's a lot. this is hard. Um, We're pretending to be scientists. Yeah. Right now, <laughs> Hypothyroidism uh, makes the conversion slower. A diet that is very high in polyunsaturated fatty acids, which we can talk about when we get into the we'll PUFA, get to that question. Uh, conversation. PUFA is just the short way to say polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, and then also I think the most interesting one is, are the studies that are showing that the more beta carotene that you eat, the, the more that conversion slows down. And I think that the reason for that, if I'm just offering like a, I don't know, just like a fun little antidote is your body is trying to figure out what the balance is, but because of, so ideally the solution would be obviously eat more beta carotene, but if the body is slowed down from stress, there is a miss, I guess like a miscommunication in the body. There's an interference with like how to make this conversion to the perfect amount because we're under so much totally. So much and that's why I was bringing up, I agree with you there. Like that's why I was bringing up the thing about studies. Like when they're taking, like maybe the studies right Pete is talking about, which um, you can, you can give me those links and we'll yeah. put that linked below. I'm really curious to see if those are human studies or if they're rat studies, because rat studies and animal studies just aren't very, it's not very good way of, of studying yeah. um, like human population. It's very weak evidence in my opinion. So if I could see that kind of evidence in human studies, then maybe that would be something to consider. Um, but those, these studies that I'm seeing to my knowledge are not taking into account the stress of someone's life. So like if, if someone is eating a plant-based diet and they're living in a way that's healthful that we both agree on, like low stress, like Mm -hmm. I imagine, we don't know for sure. This is like a hypothesis, Mm -hmm. especially like, I would like to know if the studies are taking into account that because maybe their conversion rate will be a lot better. Yes. You know, and it kind of brings back the philosophical point of like, how do we take the most stress off of our body? How do we optimize the metabolism? And maybe someone can perfectly make that conversion possible, like like a low stress life, figure that out. Like maybe they are able to make that conversion. And it, well, it kind of brings me to the question of just like, do you think plant-based is sustainable for everybody? Because retinol is this um, very essential in my mind, in my, in my opinion, um, nutrient that people can rely on for their vitamin A, um, resources. And we've also, what I think is interesting is studying or observing like Weston A. Price, obviously you're familiar with him, but, um, these were a lot of his observations as well. Before we even understood nutrition science, nutrition science is such a new, um, study. You know what I mean? Like it's, we're still in the baby, the baby stages of being able to understand like what, how There's so much we don't body. know. Yeah. For so sure. much we don't know so much we haven't studied. Um, but instead how can we observe basically like what, um, 
you know, different cultures and indigenous people were, were eating. And I know like liver was obviously like a huge one that he discovered that a lot of the, um, uh, uh, conceiving, you know, people that were pregnant, people that were trying to get pregnant, um, vitamin A being such a fertility, you know, nutrient, it activates copper, it regulates the whole iron recycling system. All of this is so important for pregnancy and life, of course. Um, but what I see, and this is of course anecdotal, this is an anecdotal. And what many of the experts see in this field is vitamin A deficiency, not getting enough from beta carotene. Therefore, they're, they're not able to activate that copper. Therefore, they're not able to regulate that iron. Then that can show up as iron deficiency anemia. Um, other things can lead to anemia as well. But to fix it, to fix the anemia, the most important things are vitamin A, copper. And so, yeah, I, it, it just poses the question of just like, okay, can can this be done? Can this not be done? You know, it's, right. and, and that's why I love getting into these conversations because yeah. it's like, hmm, yeah, like, can this be done? You right. Know? Well, I, there's a couple things that I would say. Firstly, the thing about anecdotal evidence of them seeing that I would like to know, like, obviously we can't really know, but sure. what, what those people's lifestyles were like. Sure. And if they're not eating a very healthy diet, yeah. right? Like just a healthy diet with lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. Cause the reality is most people are not eating enough fruits and vegetables. Like of all the sickness that we have in the world mm-hmm. and especially the we- the western countries mm-hmm. of all the chronic diseases we're seeing it's not because they're eating too much kale like they're not eating too much fruit like right. like right like it, they're not eating enough fruits and vegetables that's 100% sure of all the things they're eating too much of vegetables are not it right, right? fruits right. are not it so if we're seeing people who are not um, like having enough conversion like why not at least start there to see that sure right are they eating enough fresh fruits and vegetables and on top of it going back to the vegan cohort studies I know I'm repeating myself but the, these studies are showing them all they all have which I'll put up here there's I have three studies like big human studies of human populations showing that none of them had um, low levels of vitamin a they were all in healthy range so if they were in the healthy range that's considered healthy versus like vegan non-vegan mm-hmm. is that considered sufficient for you sure so, oh, oh, you're asking, oh, that was an actual question. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I yeah. it was rhetorical. No, no, it is. Yeah. No, I mean both, whatever. But like, is that, would that be considered sufficient, right? If you're seeing them in healthy vitamin A range, would that be enough evidence to like, okay, maybe vegans are getting enough vitamin A? If I gave you my, like my ideal, yeah. my, my ideal would be everybody gets this test done called a full Monty iron panel, which is okay. you're able to see, um, vitamin A levels, how it's affecting your copper, how your copper is affecting your iron. If I had an ethical, um, conviction for, for veganism, like, this would be the first test I would actually do is like, mm-hmm. like to understand if I'm making that conversion rate, because mm, what yeah. we're seeing is that these days people, especially in the Western world, in the Western world, these days, a lot of people are over and over and over again, showing that they're having a hard time converting the beta carotene into, but you made an amazing point, which is, okay, well, what are they eating? Yeah, we would have to, eating? yeah. Absolutely. And we'd have to look at the vegan populations to specifically know, like, do, do they get enough off plants to convert it properly? So I'll just quickly mention so they can pull up. And if you have any studies, you can totally put them up. Or if you don't have them specifically to talk about, like we said, we're going to put them all in the link below. I don't know mm-hmm. if we'll have enough room in the notes on like podcast or Spotify, but I'll put them on my website on the podcast page. And they're yeah. definitely going to be in my YouTube. It goes like, to like a Google Doc. It's just like pages and pages. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll put it on like my website, like exactly on Perfect. the page. It, it should be enough. So one of them is this Swiss vegan study, the vitamin A status in vegans were well within healthy range. And I think like the most important thing to like drill home is just that like regardless of all the mechanistic speculation, like vegans, vitamin A status seem to be just fine, like compared to non-vegans. So like to me, I feel like it's sufficient. Like we could go back and forth on the mechanistic aspect of the different gene, right? Mm-hmm. Of the gene stuff. But mm-hmm. to me, that's sufficient. Especially there's one another one again in 2020, a study of German vegans, vitamin A levels totally fine. 
And then there's also a, a new Finland study, vitamin A levels were perfectly fine. Um, in the Finnish study, there was, they did have like issues with vitamin B12 and D due to like improper supplementation, which we do recommend on a plant-based diet. If you're not in an area that's like sufficient for sunshine, like to deal with vitamin D in that way with supplementation mm-hmm. and B12 obviously, but all right, let's shift the conversation. We have a lot to get through and it's already a long episode. Honestly, <laughs> we could probably leave our husbands there with the kids for like four hours and just keep going. <laughs> um, but now we're going to tackle saturated fats. And I think we kind of came to the conclusion. We want to just like, I'll share where I'm coming from with saturated fat and why I think the way that I do. And then you can share why you think the way that you do with saturated fat. We probably won't even have that much to like go back and forth on because we're just coming at it with different lenses. Yeah. And so I'll just share why. And then you share why, and then we'll move on to the next topic. Perfect. Okay. I do have one question for you though, before I get into it, because it knows for me where to go from there, Okay. your answer. So like my first question is like, do you believe that elevated LDL cholesterol causes heart disease? I think that it is more about the particle size, but we're on the same page about that, right? So like the smaller the particle of the LDL, the LDL particle, um, that is when it's a problem. I, from my understanding, it's not like LDL, it's like the particle size. Cause when it's a smaller particle, it's able to enter into, um, the arter- artery wall and cause that damage. Does it make okay. sense? Elevated LDL causation with heart disease is like the most like studied relationship and strongest relationship we have, like with science, nutrition science. And if we don't have, if we can't like accept that, then like we kind of have to throw out like everything with nutrition right. science. Right. Um, and I just want to kind of explain what that is to like show that because I do think a lot of times with saturated fat conversations, it can get in the weeds about is saturated fat good for you? Is it not? And at the end, it's like, oh, wait, one actually doesn't even think that elevated LDL causes heart disease, whereas mm. the other does. And so we kind of have to be on the same page, I think, with that at least. Yeah. No, I don't I don't necessarily think that LDL is good by any means. I think it's the ratio from the HDL to the LDL. Um, so if LDL is like super elevated and then the particle size be, be, being even more important to that is kind of what I meant. Okay. Does it make sense? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Because we do have like, we have like cohort studies, we have genetic studies, which is like about the, that different people have these genetic adapt, basically adaptations or just ten, uh, in their genes that show that they have, tend to have lower LDL. Um, and they significantly across the board have like lower heart disease risk. The lower their LDL is, the lower their heart disease risk. And then also the same, there's a, there's like 50 genetics, uh, 50 genes for that lower LDL one. Whereas there's a couple even like high LDL genes where people just naturally from birth have a higher LDL. And we see across the board, there's one that's like increases it a little and then one that like shoots it through the roof. And like time and time again, if they do not catch it early, like these people die of heart disease in their 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And it's like the perfect, um, uh, what is the word for it? it's like the perfect randomized control trial because it comes from birth. Whereas like, you know, statin drug studies, you're only seeing like a few years mm-hmm. and this is like from birth. So decades. So there's that. And then there's also like the cohort studies as well as like the, um, the statin studies on like pharmaceutical drugs. And I think after like all that wide body of evidence, it's like really hard to refute that like elevated LDL cholesterol causes heart disease to so, like to review that. Sure. That's the only reason I wanted to get into that but with that in mind like to me I feel like knowing this we have a strong we have strong understanding through studies that that saturated fat does affect LDL cholesterol and and is cause causation causational with with 
heart disease. Um, a lot of times people want to focus on the serum cholesterol when really dietary cholesterol, yeah, right. a little bit, but yes. for the most part, it's the LDL, the saturated fat. And it's not just saturated fat, right? Like I think a lot of times people want to get into this. It's one or the other. It's sugar, it's saturated mm-hmm. fat, it's, but really it's a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Trans fats, you know, the processed sugar, refined carbs from um, white, like white car- like carbohydrates that are refined um, mm-hmm. from sugars and flours, but also saturated fat, which is where we disagree, right? So the I think the other things we can agree on, right? Like the do you agree with that at least? Okay, trans yeah. fats, trans fats, gross. causing yeah, yeah, yeah. Ca- causing heart disease, raising LDL um, cholesterols, and like the refined the refined sugars. So the part that we disagree on is saturated fat, and I think it really depends when you look at these studies because there are some studies right that say well saturated fat actually did better, like it helped lower lower cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, lowering LDL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. The, the reality is, is we have to look at what were they comparing it to? What did they swap out the saturated fat for? And if they swapped out the saturated fat for trans fats or refined carbohydrates, you might not see any difference or even an increase. Right. But if you're, sa- if you're swapping out saturated fats with PUFAs, which I know you don't like, or MUFAs or whole grains, we're seeing lower, like a consistently across the board, lowered LDL cholesterol. And this comes from like human studies, wide like cohort studies that is showing that. And even if you're taking apart, like let's say there's a study maybe you present that's like, um, not like kind of a weak study. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I'll, like there could be one or two that I present that w- could be weak. But if you take out those ones and just do the really well mechanized ones, like which I'll put up here, they have consistently saturated fat increases LDL and swapping it out for the whole grains and PUFAs in, like decreases it. And I'm with you. Like, I don't think the processed oils like the PUFA oils are healthy, but for a different reason, which I think we'll get into um, more so just about that. They are r- rich in calories and a low source of nutrition. Um, but if you're comparing it like to heart disease and showing what the studies show, like that's just what it shows. And so that's where I'm at with that. And and I'll, I'll just put those those studies on because it really just depends on what you replace it with Mm -hmm. so that's that's why i think that that the evidence is clear that saturated fat does cause heart disease and and elevates ldl cholesterol and when you say saturated fats just clarification do you also include coconut oil coconut palm oil or are you comparing um animal saturated fats with with plant saturated yeah i think mainly animal saturated fats like getting a significant source of your calories from that because you know there's saturated fats a little bit in lots of different ones and the chance of someone like just pounding the coconut oil is different than like what's actually happening of people eating a lot of animal foods that are rich in saturated fats. Sure. Yeah. So I think it's important to back up and talk about what these fats are. So um, saturated fats are single bonded um, structures that makes them very strong, that makes them very stable and stable. When I say stable, that just means um, they're not like breaking apart in the presence of oxygen, light, heat. And when you break apart, you are creating um, free radicals and that can lead to a whole free radical damage cascade. And so they are the most stable, they are the most strong fats. They're also known as like the warm climate fats. And so if you actually take an animal from like a cold climate and move it to like a tropical environment, their body, like their fatty tissue will actually become more saturated and the same thing with plants. And so the reason we see macadamia nuts here um, locally is they're actually like one of the lowest uh, polyunsaturated fatty acid content nuts out there because they're in a warmer climate. So the colder you get, the more polyunsaturated fatty acid um, content, uh, nutritional structure uh, of the fats that you see and the warmer you are the more saturated the fats are so because they are strong like i said um they're more stable number one uh man i'm trying to get the guy that said this i love how he says it's dr chris 
Cresser. No, no, no. <laughs> We're not going to talk about him. Um, talk to Chris, something else. I, he was just talking about like, uh, the studies that have been done on, on saturated fats in general and like cholesterol and all that. And he was like, okay, they're the things that we have and heart disease. Sorry. Um, they're the things we have thought of that we've tested and we will go back and forth for decades, you know, on this and this and this and this and this, there are the things that we have not thought about and have not tested. And then there's the things that we have, um, can ever think about. And there, as far as the cause of heart disease, there have been a lot of people going, Hey, Hey, like, Hey, look at me over here. I'm doing this work. Like, please look at my research, like look at, look what I'm doing. And, um, that they have not been met with, um, a lot of like, uh, basically just being ignored by the medical community, basically. Um, so Dr. Broda Barnes being one of them. Um, I think he has one of the most interesting points on heart disease because of the homocysteine. Are you familiar with homocysteine? Mm -hmm. Um, I think like plant-based community would call it like the acid from, uh, animal foods. Mm -hmm. So like homocysteine is a, it's a natural acid that elevates after you eat, um, protein or animal foods. And then your B vitamins are what break down that homocysteine like that. So it's like elevates and then B vitamins break it back down. Um, if you don't have B vitamins, then you're not elevating that, um, excuse me, you're not bringing back down that homocysteine. And so what happens when you have chronically like skyrocketed homocysteine levels for a long period of time, what it does is actually burns holes in the arteries and then plaque comes and tries to um basically like regenerate it and heal your body is trying to self-heal and um so essentially there's two ways you can go with that one is okay well let's cut out the animal foods for sure like they're causing this like elevation in homocysteine like this is the problem and dr broda barnes is like okay well let's talk about the b vitamins first off why are you deficient second um why are you not absorbing b vitamins and his um, conclusion, it, his big thing is hypothyroidism. So an underfunctioning thyroid hormone, if you have an underfunctioning thyroid, you're not, uh, absorbing B vitamins as well. And therefore you're not breaking down the homocysteine. Um, and he was able to reverse heart disease in many, 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 many patients by treating them with, um, thyroid hormone and really healing their thyroid. So a lot of alternative practitioners will actually, they, they do understand this and they will give B vitamins as part of a heart disease, um, like protocol. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Broda Barnes is like, yeah, that is an option, but I'm just going to treat the thyroid. I honestly think that he literally was just supplementing with thyroid hormone alone just to see what happens. And you guys can go look into his work yourself. I don't want to miss, I don't want to misquote him. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an expert on these things. I'm just bringing different things into this, into this conversation. But yeah. I think that, um, it presents an interesting question of just like, are we, are we hyper-focused on something where there is a bigger picture involved? And as far as saturated fats, like, um, in controlled studies, you can, you can cause saturated fats to raise, um, blood cholesterol levels for sure. What you're bringing up is the LDL, obviously. Um, and that is one where I have not, um, and I can obviously list like a list of studies as well, but I have not seen a causal relationship with saturated fats and LDL, but more importantly, that size of the LDL, what is causing the degeneration basically of the lipids? Like what is causing them to... So you to, think it's another cause? I think <laughs> these people are going to be like, who is this like meta <laughs> medical um, questionnaire? No, we're just, we're just sharing like okay. what we've read and learned. You yes. know what I mean? I think that there is um, good reason to explore other answers, especially... Okay, here's a question ahead. then. Go Sorry ahead. to interrupt. But why do you think that the medical community is rejecting his studies? Is it possible they're flawed studies? Well, so medical community back in the... Well, back in the 1920s, so there was a good... Um, there are people that believe that there was a good reason to 
perpetuate the saturated fats are are bad um, idea because these um, saturated fats would sorry polyunsaturated fats being good because there was a massive need to sell a ton of crops of seed oils vegetable oils and so um, I guess it was yeah I think it was the 1920s whenever some um, farmers, and actually this is interesting to look into just as far as saturated fats and polyunsaturated fats on the metabolism, because these farmers were like, how do we um, like fatten up our, our livestock and feed them less food with, um, or like feed them less with less resources. Mm-hmm. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Make them satisfied, keep them fat, but with less resources. And so they started with coconut oil. Um, and when they fed them coconut oil, the livestock got leaner, um, they were more active and then they started losing, I already said that they started losing weight. Um, and then they were hungrier because their metabolisms were speeding up. And so they were like, Ooh, okay, no, <laughs> like that, we don't need that. Um, and then they started feeding them corn and, uh, soy bean oil. And they found that the opposite happened. They were able to, um, reduce their me- metabolic rate by 50%. So they were able to feed them less and they were continuing to get fatter and fatter and fatter. This is why cancer patients are fed soy oil, soy oil to keep them from losing weight. And so the paint industry at the same time found out that they could make, um, paint with petroleum instead of seed oils. And so they were like, Oh, this is like such a cheaper option. Um, and they needed to get rid of seed oils. And so they basically, um, they, they rode on this one study. They found that the seed oil was able to chemically dissolve the cholesterol, the blood cholesterol, but that poses an interesting problem because cholesterol there is there to protect you. Cholesterol is just a response. Um, mm-hmm. It's a symptom. Um, it's actually a healing agent. And so um, basically that was the study that they were writing on. And then there was a, I believe, possibly a reason um, financially to keep the saturated fats are bad. Polyunsaturated fats are good. And then obviously the health and the medical literature are, are you know, changed from there. I'm not sitting here questioning. Um. Yeah, no. Can I respond to that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I find, I really want to see that study. I'm interested to see it. I haven't yeah. heard of that study from, what was his name again? The study with the um, seed oils? The th- no, the one with the um, thyroid. Oh, Dr. Broda Barnes. Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I'd like to see that one, um, which we'll get to after the episode. Um, but about the... Okay, there's a couple of things about the incentive and like basically the corruption behind science. I think if anything, there's a much stronger argument of animal agriculture, big ag having influence in studies than there is in seed oils, seed oil, big, big seed oil. There's really not a big seed oil industry, to my knowledge, that influences our nutrition science like big ag. Big ag is so huge and they're so powerful with what they they fund tons of studies and they fund it in a way like to where their researchers know that if they don't give them favorable outcomes, they're not going to fund them again. So they have influenced so much when it comes to nutrition science. And I haven't heard of that at all when it comes to like seed oils. That story, that's a really interesting historical story. And I'm sure that it's, it's accurate. I'm curious though, how it actually influenced science, like who paid for the science sure. to show that like seed oils were good for you. Sure. I'm skeptical that like if the nutrition science would be hesitant to like if it was a well done study that they wouldn't want to use it I would be I would think that it might not be a well done study because big ag is so powerful they would want to fund that kind of study to show the saturated fat but is back in (laughs) with that just to play like devil's advocate like Ansel Keys the one that um started the saturated fat is bad uh I guess like um trajectory Mm -hmm. he was met with 
absolute skepticism absolute world health organization was just like no Mm -hmm. like 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 we we don't we don't agree with this like there were there was a lot of skepticism with him as well and so i'm just playing devil's advocate yeah yeah. (laughs) no no yeah heart disease was at its peak like in the 60s before Mm -hmm. the processed foods industry so i think that's really i think that's important to consider so if we're really going to say it's like processed foods and a lack of like nutrition from like whole foods then why why was heart disease so prevalent like post World War because really post World War we start World War Two we started to get have more affluence so we started to eat more meat more animal foods it used to be once a week and then it turned into like an everyday thing and that's kind of when we started to see like the skyrocket in heart disease so to me that's kind of like a direct correlation in the 1960s well no it, it, was, it was at its peak by that time okay so. The heart disease peaked at 1960. There was a lot of heart disease before the processed foods industry picked up. So mm-hmm. to me, it feels like it's it's a good way to understand that like maybe it's both. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah, I'm always a, open to yeah. yeah, like examining both. I think the seed oils played a massive role in in uh, being a huge contributor to disease and mm-hmm. cancer. And um, yeah, I think we're that- like on the same page there when it comes to processed foods. Like if someone's eating trying to be like I'm eating pro metabolically but they're eating like you know pizza hut mm-hmm. four times a week you're gonna be like wait a second let's like and they're saying I don't feel well you're gonna be like okay for let's sure. try to get out of the processed foods and that's like exactly what I would say for sure because because it is the convenience factor mm-hmm. plays a huge role which I'm sure you and I agree on like you yes. and I are both like one of the rare people that actually takes a lot of care into like what we feed our family what we bring into our home because it, we know it is easy to just grab the processed stuff mm-hmm. feed our kids the processed stuff but neither of us are like that I think that's another reason why we bond so much mm-hmm. because we're like yes make home make things from scratch homemade mm-hmm. figure out like you know garden and like um get things with like nutritionally dense soil so like we're both fully on the same page mm-hmm. I think I think the part where we end up like splitting a little bit is more like is it just the processed food stuff mm-hmm. or is it also animal food stuff sure yeah but, yeah so with that why don't you go into saturated, saturated fats fat, your views on um, saturated fats yeah saturated fats basically my my views at at this point on them what are that they are healthy and done in the right way just like i can't say meat is healthy like there is meat that is absolutely unhealthy depending on how it was raised what the cattle what the livestock were um eating and then that goes for any animal um i think another interesting point is uh like mycotoxin exposure and just like a a whole realm of things that are that could be inside of a saturated fat and animal protein that we're not examining um at this point and i think that we should i think there should be a ton more studies on red meat saturated fats um and looking at a you know looking at it from different angles but what i do want to talk about is kind of just the chemical aspect of a saturated fats because before we get into like um is it good is it bad i think it is important to understand like what it is and it wasn't something that i studied until like um i think three years ago was when i was like what even is that like what, mm-hmm. what, what even is a saturated fat so um saturated fats it is a um it is a fat with a single bond and so that saturated means it's like saturated with hydrogen and then monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats would be um, something with one or more double bonds and the more and more and more double bonds that you have the more um, flexible and pliable the fats are it's the reason that a saturated fat is um, uh, solid at room temperature mm-hmm. and then polyunsaturated fats are liquid um, for the most part and so the more unsaturated you are the more kinks you have in the system and therefore the more susceptible you are to um, oxidative uh, damage in the in the presence of light and heat and light heat and oxygen Mm. Um, and so what we were kind of discussing before is basically 
what we see as far as fat um, in our food, it changes based on what your what your climate is. And so when you get to more warm and tropical environments, you see food moving to a more saturated environment and it's a more stable environment. Um, there is a whole entire um, piece that this guy, Dr. Christopher, I don't know why I'm forgetting his last name, but I will link that. I'll he, put it right here in the screen. Okay, he kind of <laughs> goes into like, okay, what even, how, do, how does our body even respond to a saturated fat? And like, what is it even doing for us? Um, and I think it's wonderful, but basically saturated fats, they, they increase your metabolism. They're, they're pro metabolic and they are very protective to the body. Um, we've talked about breast milk before, I think like saturated fats being the majority of the, of the fats that are in breast milk. However, I'm, I'm actually really curious now if a woman lives in a colder climate, if her breast milk is actually higher in polyunsaturated or, you know, unsaturated fats versus saturated in a, in a woman that's in a warmer Hmm. I mean, I would like to see a study on that. I don't know. Oh, it's probably never been done, but it was just a thought that I've had. Um, and so saturated fats, um, they're, yeah, like I said, very stable. And I think that this is something that people are not really looking at because oxidative stress, free radical damage is such a key component to disease, dysfunction, cancer. And um, I think the demonization of saturated fats is at this point in time, not something that I've seen as a, as a causal effect, um, of heart disease, of heart disease. And when we look at, we can look at cultures who have been thriving off of saturated fats for, um, you know, a very long time. Uh, you can look at Pacific Islanders and people that live in warm and tropical environments where saturated fat is by and large, the majority of the fats that they're eating, because that is the fat that it's, that's, um, in, you know, in front of them, we were talking about macadamia nuts, um, you will find local macadamia nut, sorry, macadamia nuts here on the islands because that nut is um, lower in um, polyunsaturated fatty acids because it's in a in a in a warmer environment. In fact, like the pro metabolic approach to nuts, there's like a, a list of highest in polyunsaturated fats and lowest in polyunsaturated fats, and macadamia nuts is like okay, this is the one. If you're gonna eat a lot of nuts, like this is a great one because there's not a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids in there, and we can go over it's like the effects of polyunsaturated fatty acids on the metabolism in a second, but essentially saturated fats, protective, um, pro-metabolic, they act as like this, um, uh, honestly, just go look at this article. I, I mean, I, we could spend all day talking about this, but my, um, my opinion of saturated fats at this point is that they are healthy, um, that cultures have been thriving off of them that have had access to them for, you know, centuries and centuries, and especially the Pacific Islanders, the three that I'm thinking of, there's three, um, and maybe I'll, I'll link the studies that were done on them in the show notes, but those that had the saturated fats as the, as the majority of the saturated fats in their diets, um, heart disease is almost non-existent. It's either extremely low or like completely free. Um, I know that the, uh, Maasai, Maasai is another example of that who eat a ton of like milk and blood even, and a lot of animal foods and heart disease was almost non-existent in them as well. And so when we're looking at different cultures, I don't know if we have the evidence to say like, oh, saturated fats, definitely the cause of heart disease because we have the opposite, I guess, on the other side to, to observe. Okay. Two questions, one question. And one thing to say though, I, I, I want to understand you correctly. You're saying saturated fat in like place, the specific places, but wasn't saturated fat. I mean, that is what across the entire world, what, what people were eating to survive because sure, like to survive and thrive. So what, what would make that different for like Pacific Islanders versus, I mean, obviously it's not everywhere. So like rural China, for instance, like is an, an, an example where their traditional diet ate very little animal foods. It was like something used to like sprinkle on their food mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was predominantly plant-based and they had very, very low heart disease. And I guess when you're comparing it would be like, 
what's the longevity like? Do you mm-hmm. know like what their longevity was like in those areas? Longevity, there is a, the one that I'm thinking of, of it starts with a T, Takavana, Takavana? Does that okay. sound familiar to you as a Pacific Islander? They looked at longevity, heart disease, cancer, um, you know, them across the board. Um, but if you're asking if, yeah, so you're asking basically if each of these studies looked at longevity as well. Yeah. I, I don't know that off the top of my head if all, if all yeah. of them No, I'd like to did. see those. I want to look at that. Okay, I think we got through most of it, basically, yeah. that we want to get through. Let's move on to the next one. Um, or is there something else you want to say? Well, just the idea of maybe cholesterol um, being the symptom. I think that is something that is really, really not talked about. And the statin drug industry is obviously a big one. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that cholesterol needs to be a conversation as far as like, okay, why is cholesterol elevated in the first place? It's a result of, um, that coming out as a, as a, as a healing agent. And then, like I said, you can also be high in cholesterol if you are hypothyroid, obviously And Broda Barnes was showing this in his work. Um, but then that vitamin A deficiency, there's so many things that can, uh, lead to a high cholesterol. And I think that it's not really, that this is not really part of the conversation, but I think that, I think that that is just a, um, it's something that we, I think we would be neutral, mm. neutral on yeah. as far as the cause of high cholesterol totally. as well. So interesting. I thank you for sharing all that. Honestly, yeah. there's, there's so much stuff that we're just like from different perspectives and maybe different things that we're not considering in different ways. So when you hear about it, it's nice to hear each other's perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's move on to PUFAs. Okay. Is PUFA really the problem or is it just process oils? You go first. Um, okay. So PUFAs. You've, kinda, you've talked a bit about it here yes. there, but why don't you just like yes. PUFAs? I mean, so essentially the oils obviously are the biggest offender and then PUFAs. Um, and basically what you need to think about with PUFAs is they have been shown, and I know that we've talked, we talked about this before the episode, um, but they have been shown to basically in short, like create less resilience, re- less resiliency in your body as a as a reaction to stress, um, also increase serotonin activity, which you may hear that and think, great, uh, that's the happy hormone, right? It's definitely not the happy hormone. Um, serotonin elevates as a result of stress to slow down the metabolism. Um, and that, I mean, that has been demonstrated in animal studies, but I, but also human studies, but I think that that the, um, it's the most obvious in preparation for hibernation. So elevated serotonin is how animals basically prepare for, for hibernation. PUFA is also, um, they can increase estrogen activity, which can create a major problem over time and lead to things like breast cancer and fibroids and endometriosis. And, um, it, I'm sure like one of your follow-up questions for this will be like, okay, well, how much, like how much and like, like what, what excess are we talking about? Number one, I think it depends on the person, but number two, um, these are not the studies that I, that I have in front of me either, but I think that excess PUFA is the conversation here. I don't think that, that polyunsaturated fats are evil or, or toxic. I think that in my opinion, like they don't make sense as far as a biological perspective to make that the majority of like the calories in your diet. They are very high in calorie. Totally. Um, I'm with you there. Yeah. And just an observation of nature as well of just like the, the foods that the animals, um, gravitate towards to slow down their metabolisms. And, um, there've been a few studies where they've swapped polyunsaturated fatty acids with, um, saturated fats in humans to watch metabolic rate. And those are really interesting. Um, but essentially excess PUFAs are my problem. We're on the same page of like, no, I don't think that food is, is toxic by any means. I think that in, um, it's whole state, like in its raw state, it does of course contain, um, anti-nutrients that are just there to protect, to protect the nut from being eaten. One of them is, um, 
inhibiting digestive enzymes actually. And so you're like inhibiting the absorption of the, um, minerals and the nutrients from it. But with the caveat that you can reduce these, um, you can see these in squirrels. When a squirrel goes and gets a nut, they don't go eat the nut right away. They actually bury it like an inch under the ground. And that allows the nut to sprout and to release some of the anti-nutrients that are harmful to the nuts, uh, excuse me, the, the squirrel's body and inhibit the absorption of things like calcium and whatnot. And so I think if nuts are properly prepared, meaning soaked, you know, soaked in water, um, sprouted is even better, then you're looking at a much better whole food source. Okay, so I'm totally with you there on the soaking and sprouting of nuts and legumes even and beans um, to help with the bioavailability of the nutrients fully on board there. I think that it's more helpful to, to describe whole food sources of these foods oh, and yeah. then separate them from like processed PUFA oils mm-hmm. because I think they do different things in the body mm-hmm. and attribute to our wellness in different ways or lack of wellness. So if we just say like PUFAs across the board, we're like people are like, oh, I'm so afraid of nuts now. I shouldn't eat any nuts. Right. When really like studies actually do show like better health outcomes eating nuts. And I think part of that is because of the, like the fiber content and the nutrients in them that people are swapping out as opposed to like processed foods. Mm-hmm. So I think it does attribute to like better health for, this doesn't mean pound the nuts. This is right. where we agree. This yes. is I think something we figured out like down the road in our friendship. I think I had read a post of yours or something. I was like, Ooh, I'm so with you on not like overdoing the nuts. You don't yes. want to just like pound it and pound it and pound it because now we have access to like bulk bins where it's mm-hmm. just easy to just get a whole pound just right yes. in your hand when really the amount of care it takes to like open properly open and get a nut out is a lot of work. And so yes. you really wouldn't be eating like that many, but there is uh, benefits based on like, like studies that we're seeing for health outcomes, um, and, and better weight management even, which is surprising. Mm. Um, just eating some nuts here and there and replacing it. I think part of that, like if you're going to talk about like, let's say like a lasagna that I'm going to make and I would use like a cashew sauce as mm-hmm. opposed to a processed cheese sauce, oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So to me, a processed vegan cheese or not, right? Like that would be a different, right. like you would probably say that like dairy cheese, actually, I know you would say that, um, is like healthier <laughs> than a process, than a vegan cheese, like a processed cheese. But if you're just comparing like my family, I think that like a cashew type of sauce, not saying you should eat a ton of cashews, right? but when you are going to here and there throughout the week, every once in a while, that, that, that kind of makes sense to me, whether it'd be better health outcomes. Yeah. And it's a sauce, meaning it's a, um, it's complimentary to to the meal. It's not the meal. And I think that that yes. is what makes the biggest difference. For sure. And I think it's very rare that someone's getting the majority of their calories from nuts, though. Like, yeah, like people can't overdo it, though, when you think about it. Like 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 we said, the bulk bins and then also nut butters, like mm-hmm. just slathering it on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but in mind of like a whole foods plant-based diet, I do think there's benefit to including it in your diet, like nuts and seeds, especially like hemp seeds. I just love hemp seeds. I think that's a great way to go. And I'll, I'll just put up a couple um, like studies about um, like nuts showing that they have better health outcomes. Um, but I, the main reason I don't like PUFA oils is that they're calorically dense and nutrient poor. So like, it's very easy with oils to get a lot of your calories from oil. And then you don't have as much room for getting calories from nutrient dense whole foods. Mm -hmm. And the thing is like, it encourages weight gain because there's so much calories in such a small little bit that it doesn't actually fill up your stomach and you're more likely to not feel satiated for not getting enough cal or for 
the fact that it's not filling up your stomach and then also because it's not nutrient dense Mm -hmm. um and because one of the reasons why i think people crave foods that are like and like eating too much or not eating healthy foods is because they're not getting enough nutrients in their body and part of that reason i think that well i think that oil can make it harder for that so like processed oils oh okay wait so you're saying you don't believe that the oils have an effect on the metabolism no i do i I, I, know at least it affects i think it does affect your um the way that you engage in food because Mm. if you're eating foods with a lot of oils in it you're significantly increasing your calories but not increasing your nutrition so does that make sense what i'm saying yeah so basically going back to the cow study you would like to see because the coconut oil and the and the oils that they were feeding them obviously were the same in calories but you're saying you would like to see maybe a human study where it's like coconut oil well, Vegetable I don't even oil. know about, I just think oils in general. Like, okay. okay, so we could get in the weeds, right? And I, I would like to listen to more things about like, you know, certain oils are like, there's studies saying that like, oh, a little bit of olive oil is like totally is fine. Oh yeah, Right. Definitely. You know, like that's, especially for someone who's like um, doing fine with their weight, like a little bit of oil, olive oil in your diet should be fine. So it's not like to be like a fear of oil, no. right? But to, but, to, and that's one thing that we agree on is like food abundance and mm-hmm. not like just restrictive, like I can never try this. Yeah, or not like orthorexic. This. No, yeah. not at all. But like an understanding of like if every day, every meal, day in and out, or, or the foods that you're eating that are processed have oils in them and you're cooking with oils, processed food oils, right? And most of the processed foods are just filled with oils. And so for you, you label poofas, mm-hmm. right? And for me, I just say oils oh. because like, I'm just like, there's just oils. Oh, and see. most of them are not olive oil and coconut oil in the processed foods. They're saffo. They are the, the oils you're talking about, but I'm just saying oil because sure. I'm like, I think oil is adding calories, but not adding nutrition. So if you're eating like the majority of your calories from whole foods, whether that's with animals or not, although I will say that with plant foods, um, is different because plants tend to be lower in calories than animal foods. You're with plant foods, you're increasing your fiber and water content and the nutrition because there's all the and the antioxidants and the micronutrients, like wonderful nutrition. And then you are less likely to eat more than you should be. You're mm-hmm. going to be eating in abundance to your own satisfaction until your body feels full and your mind tells you to be done and you're getting more nutrition as opposed to if you're eating a meal with a lot of oil, like 400 calories from oil, you easily can. For sure. And then you're like, why am I gaining weight? Why am I not losing weight? And you're just eating tons of oil throughout your day, which because it's it's very sneaky. Like Mm -hmm. you just think, that's one little tablespoon. Mm -hmm. That's 120 calories of just pure fat. Right. Whereas if if you're eating whole foods, you're less likely to be eating too much of something. Does that For make sure. sense? For sure. Yeah, because processed sugar is the same way. And so processed foods, these ultra processed foods are filled with that stuff. They're filled mm-hmm. with oil. They're filled with processed sugar and it confuses your body and your brain. And it's like super high in calories and low in nutrients. For sure. So I feel like we're on the same page. We just use different oh, yeah. language. Right? Yeah. And, and I maybe think, look at it slightly differently. I don't know. No, I think that we are on the same page of if you remove reduce if you reduce one yeah. thing in your diet, like we're not telling you to remove the entire thing and be, like I said, orthorexic about it. But we're on the same page of like even if this is the one, the one change you make, like yes. you will see health benefits for, from it. Absolutely. Because totally. not only will you reduce those calories, but you're going to replace them with nutrient dense yes. calories. But the oils are like, I think inarguably harmful, like mm-hmm. for sure. Um, yeah. And but, even though we might use slightly different language and say it in like maybe different reasons, I think we come back to like the kind of the same thing and they do a whole host of beneficial things. It does you a ben- benefit by just not making that the staple of what you're cooking with. Exactly. And then being careful to read ingredients. Like so many people don't look at the ingredients in their pro- in their food packaging. Yes. And safflower oil, <laughs> sunflower oil, all mm-hmm. that stuff, um, processed sugar, um, all just laid in with those foods. Mm-hmm. So we're on the same page fully right there. I think, did we cover it? Is there yeah. anything else? No. Totally I, have no I have no thoughts.
Good. <laughs> I have no thoughts. <laughs> All right, so we just decided we have a, we had like five other top <laughs> points we wanted to hit, and this is just really way too long. And maybe we'll do another episode one day, sure, hitting the other points. But let's go into something that I think is a really interesting conversation, which is the ethical component. Mm-hmm. We both want to get into there. So I think I'll just ask you the first questions, which is, what are your thoughts on the ethical reasons for eating plant based? Well, maybe a clarification, a, like a clarification question first which is what is the, I guess, like chronological logic, like clarify for me the chronological logic of ethically not eating animals. It's like, this isn't, um, well, you, you know, I'm not gonna put words in your mouth. You tell me like chronological logic of just like, what's the first thought and how does it lead to that? How does it lead to eating vegan? Yes. Or the omission of animal foods. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think it goes to, just wanting to cause the least amount of harm that's reasonably possible. I think <clears throat> you do not have to be an animal lover to be, gravitate towards that. Because I am not an animal lover. A lot of people might be surprised to hear that. I don't gravitate towards just like naturally just super obsessed with animals like some of my friends are, right? Like I actually remember a story which might help ease your mind a little bit. Like growing up, we had a family dog. My mom had called me and said, John Luke died. Yes, his name was John Luke. Don't laugh. <laughs> And, um, he was, and so he died. And so I was out on the street with my friend who, Kesley, still one of my best friends today from high school. She's a huge animal lover. Neither of us were vegan at the time. We were in high school, like high school. And I was like, I hung up the phone. She's like, what's wrong? I was like, oh, my dog died. And she started crying. And I was like, why are you crying? Like I, like I wasn't even crying. Mm-hmm. A lot of people cry when their dog dies. Like mm-hmm. I, it's fully understandable. I don't, I just don't, I just, my whole life haven't naturally been someone, some people are just more naturally drawn to animals than others. And I, I do love animals, but I think the reason I say this story is that you don't have to be like a huge animal lover mm-hmm. to want to cause, to not support their suffering. Sure. Like to not be paying for their harm. Right. Sure. Yeah. So as while I am not inclined to go run up and just like have a big farm in, farm sanctuary on my land and have like twenty animals on my property, like while I'm not inclined for that, I am inclined to not want to see them suffer. Mm-hmm. And I know that by paying for it, I'm supporting their suffering. And I know I don't want to see them suffering. Right. Like I wouldn't want to look at it. So I that's where I got to why I wouldn't want to support mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And even though I started eating plant based for my health, I actually had no ethical component at the time. I I remember even like having dinner with my dad and other people being like, do you care that we're going to eat steak? And I was like, I don't care. I'm just doing this for my health. Mm. That was my logic and my mindset at the time. Just so, just a backstory to understand that like, I think it's easier to relate to too, knowing that there are people who sure. are like that, right? That sure. you don't have, you're like, well, I'm not naturally someone that's just going to be obsessed with animals. Like some people, some people are, and that could be, you could just go into that. I wonder what stems from that. Um, but I do think that you cannot want to see them suffer. And so Mm -hmm. that's when I didn't have any ethical connection to them. I hadn't even considered the animals when I was eating plant-based for a while, like years until I had watched the speech by Gary Yurofsky called Mm -hmm. the best speech you'll ever hear, which you sent to me. Yes. Yes. I don't know if you ever watched it. Yeah, I watched it. Oh, you did. Okay. So, um, that speech, I just like, and part of the reason why I think I was more receptive to it at the time of watching it is because I was already eating vegan. Oh, And like, you're already eating that way. So it doesn't feel as threatening as because he comes on really strong. Yeah. But the way that he spoke, just spoke in a way that was so logical to me that I was like, wow, I want nothing to do with this. Mm. I can't believe I had never considered the animals before Mm. because it's, it's not like you have to be 
like just wanting to go work on a farm and love your like a sanctuary and just want to sure. be around them all the time but you also don't want to see them suffer mm-hmm. just like i know if i saw someone beating a dog in front of me i would want to go and stop it my inclination would be like heck no this is horrible and most people feel that way actually mm-hmm. the difference stems from whether it's a necessary part for your health right so mm-hmm. that's why some people are like well and also there's people will be like, well, there's a difference between beating a dog versus just killing them mm-hmm. without, without much quote unquote suffering to be able. And that's where we part ways, I think. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Cause I think that, um, another thing I also hear is like, uh, kindness, like, like showing them like as much kindness as possible to, um, to the animals. And I think that's where I, it always is going to circle back to, what you just said, which is, well, are animal foods necessary for our, for our health? Do they help us thrive? Do they help us survive? Or I guess, are they necessary? That's the, that's the more important question for sure. Yes. Um, because of course I think there's more of a mainstream idea, a mainstream vegan idea that I've seen that I think you would actually disagree with, which is like, we don't need animal foods. We don't, we can make the taste, we can make our food taste like animal foods and you won't miss it. But I, I'm not eating animal foods for the taste. Like I'm eating it because I believe that the most nutrition, nutritious and bioavailable food, um, avail- available to us. And so <clears throat> I think that with the ethical component, I think that the logical, um, part of like, I don't want to see an animal suffer and that leading to not eating animals is a super interesting conversation. Um, because I know that like taking that same like objective logic doesn't work for some things, but I know people are like, well, it's death. Like it's, we're talking about death here. What's an example where it doesn't work? Oh, well, this is, I mean, this is just more of like an objective thing of like, Hey, if I can't imagine doing that, then I'm clearly, then we, no one is meant to do that. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. So like you could apply the same to, I'm trying to think of a really like, like a lighthearted example, maybe like, um, performing surgery. Like if I can't perform, perform surgery, then no one's meant to get surgery done. Therefore, like no one can possibly stomach this. And I think it comes back to us. This is just my personal opinion. Okay. Um, I think it comes back to us moving away from community because at the end of the day, they're as far as I can imagine in my mind and we can absolutely evolve. Like we can, I always welcome change and evolving as far as I can imagine right now, there will always be people that can stomach like, um, killing an animal, especially for their sustenance and for their health and do it in a way that is extremely honoring to the animal's life. Um, and I think in moving away from community, we've forgotten that we are all different and that like, just because I, you know, I'm not saying I, cause I can't, I, I can picture myself, you know, hunting or fishing. Um, and it's not something that is like gruesome or, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful with my words here, obviously for like the sake of the audience, you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that in moving away from communities, I think that there has been a forgotten part of, we can all have different interests, skills, passions, um, things that we can imagine ourselves doing. One person is amazing at growing a tomato and that is like their thing. And you've experimented with, uh, making sourdough bread and it was just like brought so much fulfillment and life to you. Um, and I, you know, across the board, like I've heard, like this, these are the same exact words, that same description of like how fulfilling and, um, primal and just like rooted it felt to provide food for yourself through something that you go and get yourself or that you know where it's sourced basically and you know how the animals are treated um there is an interesting um i don't know it's it's an interesting conversation because i don't know if we can see you know someone who i know 
some people might laugh at this word, but like ethical hunting would just mean that you are extremely aware of what wildlife is around you, who are the moms, who are the dads, who are the babies. Um, you know, never, I mean, I remember, um, Kyle telling my husband, telling me that like, if, and this is kind of like, like obviously hunting culture as well. Like anyone that has grown up with a family hunting knows that like, if you, if you shoot the wrong buck, like if you shoot the wrong beer or beer deer that year, like you are going to be like tethered, like just like, just absolute, like just how maddening that is because that was the one based on, um, you know, working with conservation and like, uh, and the local organizations to, um, to know exactly what animal to bring home for your food. And so I think that is way different from factory farming, of course, where we're extremely disconnected from our food sourcing. But as far as the ethical piece, as far as the ethical piece, I think it always comes down to who defines right and wrong, you know, where we find that, um, definition within ourselves or like how we would define that globally, like globally, like what is right, what is wrong? How do we know the definition of right and what right and wrong? And can we argue with somebody else's different definition of right and wrong? Um, and so it's not, I don't see this as a black and white answer. I see it as this is a cool conversation. And I don't know that I personally see the logic of, um, if I can't stomach, you know, killing an animal for my food, that means that no one should. Does mm-hmm. it make sense? Yeah. Well, when I was speaking about that, I was speaking that for myself that I wouldn't want to see it. Therefore, I'm not going to support it myself. Oh, I see. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think you're, um, but that is not to say that I'm not advocating for people to do it though, sure. but just from, that's what I meant when I was saying that. Um, but I think it's really interesting what you said about the community aspect that people will have different gifts as you, if you will, or different things that they're good at. But something that you said was about that some people can stomach it right? Mm -hmm. To me, that's an important piece to note in that if we're really going to talk about our health and what's going to make us thrive, food shouldn't be hard to stomach. Like it shouldn't be like, it shouldn't be like, oh, like, like what is our natural food? You can look at every mammal or every species, right? Like it's what looks delicious to them in their natural state. So one reason why we know fruit is perfect for us as humans is the way our hands are, the way we can reach and grab it, the way the color is. It's appealing to us just the way that it is. And there's nothing appetizing about the skinning and dismembering of an animal. Now, you could argue that some people are like there's there's hunters that are fine with it and that maybe over a long period of time they start to, you know, certain people who get really accustomed to eating raw meat, that that maybe they can find um, (laughs) positive experiences from that. But there's a difference between positive experiences from enjoying sourcing your own food, because I relate to that. I enjoy I love sourcing my own food from my garden. It's the most, it's just such a rewarding thing, mm-hmm. making things from scratch. But why can't we just do that plant-based is the, is the question, right? Sure. So if we, if, okay, I have a question for you at the end about that. <laughs> but um, when it comes, there's a difference, I think, between enjoying sourcing your own food versus like finding it appetizing mm-hmm. to skin and dismember an animal and defeather them. And like, it's a really grueling, not like messy process that I think most people would not find enjoyable to watch or do. Mm-hmm. And I think if you grow up being conditioned to enjoy that, that's different than what our natural biology is. Because what our natural biology is, we like as children, we aren't inclined to do that unless we're going to do it out of survival because we have no other choice of what to eat. So I think that is a good argument on what's best for our health because we can look at our biology, our natural desire to not want to hurt animals sure. and what we actually teach. We actually teach children not to hurt animals, right? Like if, if they are taught to hunt, right? They're only taught to hurt certain animals or kill certain animals. Other animals are like completely off limits. You teach them to actually be super kind to them, not just to not kill them, but like 
don't pull on the kitty's tail. Like that'll hurt the kitty. Like mm-hmm. be gentle. Don't hit. Oh, be gentle to the baby duck. Like all, all of that, we teach them to be kind. So the real, I think like question, I guess you could say philosophical question is like, why would, why is why would we do that for certain animals? Why are we inclined to do that? Right. But not others, because I, I think it's because we're just told and taught that these animals are for eating mm-hmm. while others are not. And because if we, over time, our whole childhood are told over and over again, pigs are for eating, deer are for eating, cows are for eating, but cats and dogs and dolphins and whales and gorillas, like we need to preserve them and be kind to them. And I think and and take care of them right like if you see one hurting in the street you Mm -hmm. might even be inclined to like help it even if you're not a huge animal lover Mm -hmm. right like at least call a veterinarian and speaking of like the hunting culture you're talking about and the care that they make to not kill certain animals to me that speaks much more about their desire to preserve the population so they can keep killing them than it is to actually caring about the animals so i guess that my question is when it comes to this is that two questions one is it are there certain animals that you think are okay and good to kill for food while others we shouldn't kill for food and then the second part is that is it important to you that we cause the least amount of harm to animals before killing them like is that considering their suffering suffering part of your thought process so i'm trying to think of where to start um because there's a couple things i do want to address about what you said as well and then maybe i'll go into into that into your questions but um, I do want to address the appetizing thing because I think that that is, uh, I mean, I've, I've heard this from, from just discussions with a lot of, of, of vegans. I am hard pressed to find somebody that is appetized by looking at a bunch of kale, to be honest. Um, and so I think that the, I think the logic of like um, only eat things that are completely appetizing to you and, and that being the logic behind it, I guess it, it, um, I guess it, it falls into uh, more conversations from there. So you, do you see what I'm saying? Yes, but I think when I'm framing the question like that, it's not like everything you eat has to be like, oh, I, I want to eat raw beans in their natural state. It's more so that it's not unappetizing. Like like it is beautiful and very um, enjoying. Like there's, very, there's a lot of joy to be had with picking fresh greens, even like kale, like you mm-hmm. said. And there's nothing unappetizing about it. Whereas like dismembering an animal and skinning them and taking part of it. like that is unappetizing for I think most people now you could you could argue that's just because they're not around it but I think there's a reason why like we take kids to go strawberry picking but we don't take them to like a trip to the slaughterhouse unless you're like in like a hunting family and you're trying to teach them to become hunters sure right so other than that is there's a reason I think why we don't because we don't find it appetizing we don't we don't want to see the process like there's a reason why you're not posting on instagram like look i'm going to show you this animal getting dismembered because nobody wants to see it but like if you were to show kale getting picked from a garden but maybe not kale for you like let's think of a vegetable right that it like sweet potato that would be a beautiful thing to show like people would want to see that but sure. people don't really want to see like an animal being dismembered i think that there absolutely are people that are not unappetized by the experience of stu- of um sustaining their food um going in and getting their food bringing it back being totally. a part of the process totally i think yeah but including the process of the um I, I mean like my my example to this is when i've and i think i've told you this story before i've just like when i was going um spear fishing or uh, lobster diving for the first time because that wasn't something growing up in texas sure you could say you are conditioned to kill animals but i had never experienced um I didn't grow up in a hunting family um, or a fishing family. And my first time going spear fishing was on a boat, um, obviously, but I was on a boat of just like, hey, go do this. And I went with a family and um, we went out there. We were spear fishing lobsters. That was my first experience as an adult, not having been conditioned to do that. And I found the experience of hunting for lobster, going, um, dismembering it, um, getting it ready to cook and cooking it 
one of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had. It felt like I had awoken almost like a primal part of me that I hadn't connected with before. And so that's where the conversations get interesting because if you hear an experience like that and you're like, I just don't understand how that's well, possible. Well, I don't think, to me, that's not hard to understand. For okay. one, I think that, and maybe vegans are like, what the heck are you saying? It's more like, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. Like if, yes. you, if you feel like that is a good source of sustenance for you and also fish are a lot harder to relate to than like a cow. So like if you were to be like my first time killing a cow and skinning it, I just doubt that you're going to be like, I loved it. Like I just have a hard time. And also like my mom and even my mother-in-law and just people I know who have grown up on farms, pretty much everyone I've talked to will acknowledge that like the first times that they've seen it, they were like sad to be like, Mm. they killed the family pig. Mm. They Like I loved that pig. Like, wait, what happened? Like, like it's like a a sad thing for them to accept a reality that they have to accept. So it's not... It's not, I don't think, a nature thing. I think it's more nurture. And you're right. There are certain people that are like, well, I don't have a problem with it at all. Of course, that's there. But um, I think overall, I, I really think that the social media example is a good example to be like, we don't want to show it. People don't want to see it. It's not It's not appetizing. Whereas like picking sure. food from a garden is appetizing and at least beautiful to us. You might not be like, oh, I can't wait to munch on that raw kale, but you're still going to find the process beautiful. You know sure. I mean? That's just my point. Yeah. Me. And to your point about um, like the hunting and the fishing and the conditioning, I don't know if this will be interesting for you to hear or not, but in families that I knew growing up who were hunting families, there was always one person in the family that was like, that's not my thing. I don't find that enjoyable. They were honest about it. Just like, I don't find that enjoyable. However, the older brother, it was just like, this is my favorite hobby. Like this is, this is what I, this is, I feel like I was made to do this for the family. Um, and agreeing to disagree there. And then like the, the, you know, the other person is just like not involved in the process. Now, do I think that that means that no one's supposed to be involved in the process? I don't know. I, I actually really value that. Like I, I value, if someone is like, I want nothing to do with the hunting and the skinning and the dismembering and, and, and creating that into food, even if they were, even if they were an animal eater, if they were like, um, I want nothing to do with that. I'd be like, oh yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Cause I feel like we are all different in the way, in the same way that, um, I think some people are incredible yeah. nurses because they can stomach the blood and like, and, and stuff like that. And so, and also I wanted to say, um, just to address the word stomaching, I'm using words that I'm, because I'm in a conversation with, with a vegan, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you made a really good point. What I would say to that is it wasn't necessarily a word I would have used if we weren't in this okay. conversation. What would you use if you weren't? Well, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have used, um, stomaching as opposed to like, I understand that your perspective on that. I don't see it as I'm, I don't see it that way is what I'm saying. I don't see it as I'm stomaching, um, this experience. I'm seeing it as, um, a way to sustain food for myself. I'm seeing it as, um, primal. And, um, you're saying there's differences between maybe like, uh, you know, you think like it's less gory, I guess, whenever it's like a lobster or a fish, um, compared mm-hmm. to like a cow well, or and less gory, yes, but also less relatable. Like like if they don't have like a cute like a nose and a face, like like a sweet animal face, it's definitely harder to relate to. So like th- there's a reason why children's books have books about fishing, but there, there's no children's books about killing animals like other animals. Sure, right? Because fish are really hard for people to relate to. So then the next question goes into okay, so even if we can't relate to these animals, even if people are fine with doing it the question is can we justify should we justify not necessarily right or wrong if it should be legal or not but our own conscience Mm. should we justify doing it if we don't have to if we if like okay here's a question for you if if you came to a conclusion and maybe changed your mind that we don't need to eat animals to be healthy 
would you think that by by the next step would be like well then i shouldn't be supporting like unnecessarily hurting an animal uh yeah because i I consider the ethical hunting whatever you want to call it or sustaining your food um locally um getting we haven't we didn't talk about dairy, but like, um, how did we the, not talk know, about dairy? How is that possible? Huh. Um, <laughs> but I think that, um, tell me your question again. Sorry. That if you did come to the conclusion that you didn't need to eat animals to be healthy and that you could be healthy without them. Yes. Does that mean that you should do that? Okay. Because yes. that would to, unnecess- to not unnecessarily harm yes. animals. Okay. So, and cause you'd asked me those two, those two questions, uh, back to back earlier that I wanted to address. And that comes down to, um, not, producing unnecessary death basically having purpose in death um in the same way that you know uh a deer dies when a lion goes and you know kills the deer um and that is the food for their uh what do you call it you know yeah whatever whatever it's called yeah um their group (laughs) (laughs) and uh anyways i think that in a necessity like that, that makes perfect sense. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see that as unkind, but a, a lot of people watching the videos when the, when the, when the lion goes and attacks, you're like, what? Yeah. Like, and you're like, but they have to, but they have to. And so in the conversation of if we don't need animal foods to be healthy, then what would be the point of, of right. contributing to their, to their death and putting purpose in their death? That's why I like, I don't know if you've ever watched this documentary, um, or read the book sacred cow. I've heard of it. You've heard of it. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it another time. Mm-hmm. But um, I, what I liked about that documentary is it was a lot of um, uh, former vegans who were involved in the production and the writing and just like understanding because they wanted to relate to people who are because it's the same, a lot of the same goals, I guess. Ending factory farming, um, regenerative farming is the goal, and um, they were just trying to relate to. It was like it was a documentary about relatability. I feel like. Um, and in a lot of the former vegans, uh, mindsets, they're like, and they're, they're out there and going and and being the one that's killing the cow. And they're like, they just see it as, as this beautiful circle of life. They see the cow having purpose. They stewarded that life's, that cow's life well while they were alive. And then it was something that they honored as they, as they ate it. So, um, because they feel they need it to be healthy because they feel it to be healthy. So when, so in answer to your question, if we, if I come to a conclusion one day, if globally we come to a conclusion one day of like um, animal foods are are a complete, um, you know, uh, in necessity. I don't know if that's the right word, but just like unnecessary for our health um, or even so that they're downright harmful for us. You know, like, yeah, what would be what would what would be the point at all? I've never been a fan of um, hunting for sport. That's never been something yes. that I've, that I've supported. I've always just been like, mm, so that, that is sound right. Yeah. Right. So that yes. means the reason is because you think you need it to be healthy. So exactly. It, all, it comes back. It always to comes the, back. But to that. do we need it to be healthy? Exactly. That's the question. And I think the globally thing, we can't really say globally, like there's so many different types of situations and people in, in, um, food insecurity. Like obviously that's, this is such a wider topic. We can't just say like everybody, but we'll be talking about everyone listening right now who has a smartphone, who has a computer, who has, you know what I mean, access mm-hmm. to foods, mm-hmm. like all kinds of whole foods. That is the question, what it, what it is for. Um, okay, where do we go from there? I mean, I guess I would ask then, because you think that there's a problem with like sport hunting, then this goes back to the question I had earlier, which I don't think we ever covered, is that do you consider factory farming to be a problem simply for health reasons or is there also animal ethical reasons? Both. I think, I think definitely both. Um, there's, and I know we didn't really talk about, uh, dairy, but there's, I do want to talk about it for a few minutes. Okay. Um, 
So like the lifelong separation from baby to mother, baby gets something that's not even like like real milk. You know, it's like some powdered mm-hmm. form. Um, how how animals are gr- completely they're divorcing um, the animal from their natural state, and that in return cycles into a whole slew of soil issues. Because I am a huge fan of regenerative farming, where you re uh, marry, I guess, grazer to grassland and through their um, poop and their urine, you are remineralizing the earth. And um, it's this whole symbiotic relationship. And in return, you can have more, you know, nutrient dense foods that come from that. But anyways, I think that it's a whole, it's, it's everything. Um, factory farming. Yeah. I stopped supporting factory farming. I think six or seven years ago. And it was actually, I mean, it was definitely after watching a, a, a vegan mm-hmm. activism um, documentary. And that is what I love about even the dairy industry. A lot of people watched some of these documentaries and activism started from that. Um, so even if we're not coming to the same conclusion at the, at the end of the day, that is what I love about the um, how th- we can still work together towards some of the same goals, depending on the individual is what I mean. And so um, this kind of coming back to more like ethical dairy practices, such as, you know, not milking the cow more than once a day when the baby is less than um, six months old, um, things like that. And then obviously uh, rearing baby and mom together, just simple things like that that were changed were, I believe, one of the huge parts of that was was vegan activism and just like the waking up of like, we are not, like this is not it, this ain't it, you know? Factory right. farming is not it. Right, and also like you, sounds like then that you do have a problem with like the abuse that happens on factory farming definitely like the picking up pigs and slamming them to the ground baby pigs because they're they don't want them anymore that's how they're killing them and like the dehorning and the the branding like all but, but that stuff is involved in even grass-fed stuff like the cutting off tails and dehorning so like is does that factor into anything that you yeah. think matters i think that that's why it's completely 100 percent so important for if you are someone that eats animal foods knowing your sourcing go meet your farmer go meet the rancher if you're doing something local otherwise if you're doing something that is imported um there is a group of um i don't know what you would call the uh, i'm forgetting the name of the organization but it's a list of um sourcing for grass-fed beef and organ meats and whatnot and you can go um, look at what kind of practices are done at their at their ranches at their farms and I think that was kind of the point of you said you haven't watched Sacred Cow no but I was planning on it but I haven't yet. okay that was that was kind of the purpose of um, of the documentary is to create funding to allow you know these uh, kinds of practices to happen but also in a sustainable way where we can like people can be fed because I think that's the, yeah. that's kind of the 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 hang-up that a lot of like you know, plant-based or ethical vegan people have is just like, well, how do you feed if, you know, for example, reducing the milk, um, the milk production from, from a cow. These are questions I'm, 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 I'm saying it cause I'm, I'm playing devil's yeah. advocate to myself basically. Yeah. yeah there really, um, there really is not, it's not possible to feed the world like that on the amount of animal foods that people eat or the amount of animal foods that the pro metabolic way advises, at least to what I'm aware, I could be wrong, but based on the way that I've seen correct me if I'm wrong, pro-metabolic weight is eating is that like animal foods are a significant source of their calories. And in order to like feed the world like that, like there's no way that grass fed and the whole like not milking the cow thing is possible. Like sure. it, it, it they take up so much land. It, it would, it's in pot, like it would not cover the earth. Like we don't, we don't have the possibility to feed the earth like that. Well, I think that, um, I think one of the, go ahead. What are you saying? Just what I was going to say is that like, we would have to significantly reduce our intake of animal foods and, and animal foods would, 
skyrocket the price of animal foods significantly increased like increase like so that's the, one of the reasons why factory farming started to happen you know and, right. and if we're not going to subsidize animal foods any more than we already do which i hope that we don't um people would have to be paying like 20 30 a pound for animal food sure and and then on top of it though if we're still going to the ethical aspect like I feel like it's an important question. Like, if we do have a problem with the suffering they experience while they are alive, shouldn't we consider going back to the? Let's say we can. We can. Let's say we come to the conclusion that you can, you can be healthy on veganism, or eating whole plant foods. Then, then shouldn't we consider the killing of the animal part of their suffering? Because, like, we. I think there's euphemisms used to make us feel better about the foods that we eat. Like, you know. Um, it was ethically killed, ethically hunted. And so I feel better about the, the foods that I'm eating, but we would never say that we like ethically killed like anyone other than an animal. Sure. It just feels better when really that animal didn't want to die. Sure. You know what I'm saying? I think that we say these things now because of the of the pushback from, from vegan activists who are like, well, this isn't ethical. And we're like, well, how do we find a solution where there there is a you know, massive group of people that absolutely believe that they need that food in their lives. And And that's the whole question. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And I, and that's really where you have to come down to it because I mean, I can't honestly blame someone if they really believe that they need those foods to be healthy. Right. And so that's where the questions and the, these types of conversations and the listening to different experts and like really trying to figure out, figure that answer out is I think the most helpful because if we don't need them, then we can actually move forward. But if you actually do need them, like, can you really, can you can't blame someone for Mm -hmm. what you really need. But I do think that like the ethical, the ethical component of like killing an animal, like they could grow up on like the nicest grassy field but they're going to end up at the same slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. And like slaughterhouse, like literally there's this documentary called Dominion. I don't know if you've I've heard watched of it. it. Yeah. You have watched it. Yeah. Um, it's not even about factory farming. Right. It's just slaughterhouses. Right. So like it's from all different types of farming and it's, it's gruesome and it's not, it's not nice. <laughs> it's not kind. And it's like, this is not to say you're not kind. It's right. to say that like the process of what these animals go through, whether they had the label grass fed, humane, whatever. Yeah. Like they still end up in the same slaughterhouse where everyone around them is being killed and all the blood and like the, there's fear and pain and there's no painful, there's no pain, like pain free way to do it. There's, I think it's like kind of a, it's a lie to say yeah. that there's. Well, and what it comes down to always is, is the question that you're asking is if we need animal foods or not, cause we would never call like the example I gave earlier you know, a lion killing a deer, any other animal killing any other animal for their food. It is gruesome. It's bloody. It's crazy. And, um, we don't see that as unkind. And so it comes back to the definition of, okay, well, what is, how do we know what right and wrong is? And I think that's what, um, I guess like the conversations that come from there, I'm just always so interested to hear like, Hey, like where, where do you find your definition of right and wrong? And like, um, and how do you know that? And how do you know it to be true? And right. Things like that. Yeah. And I feel like the question of right and wrong could be an entire podcast episode on it. So totally. like a whole two hour conversation, like totally. what's right and wrong. But that's why it comes down to what's like not supporting unnecessary harm, like yes. not necessary suffering. So that's where we part roads is like, do we need it? Do we not? And that, and that like, do we need them to be healthy or not? And that's where the difference is. And that's why I think it's so important for anyone listening who is vegan, who is an ethical vegan to not be like, quick to judge someone who is advocating for a different way that I'm not talking about someone who's just like mindlessly not thinking about the foods they're eating. And also you might've been there once too, right? Like us, even before we were the way that we are, we might've mindlessly ate in a way, not thinking, Definitely. right? But even someone who is advocating for a certain way to understand their perspective is huge and mm-hmm. super important. So, okay, let's just quickly get into dairy. What do you think are the ethics 
like is there an ethical way to do dairy in your mind well i guess my opinion of what could be ethical would bring us back to what things look like before factory farming and dairy was more expensive dairy Mm -hmm. was this we've talked about this before it was a this delicacy you know Mm -hmm. um and you know you got it from like royalty and like only they had access to it because of the you know the what they could have accessed from the cow the livestock and the cows around them and the goats i mean sheep like there's a there's a lot of different um animals that you can get you can get dairy from um, if I had to prefer one, it, it would actually be cow or excuse me, goats and not, and not cows. Um, but as far as the ethics in my mind of my opinion of what would be done in an ethical way is to, um, create the most natural environment for the cow and the calf, um, in a way that stewards their bodies well. And so not using antibiotics and, um, well, I won't say that word, but like other things that you can inject into them. Um, and hormones, of course, like not adding hormones into, into the cow, allowing the cow and the calf to, um, to rear together. And then, um, different practices have, have, have different like rules on this. There's one that's, I think it's FACT, which is like a, a list of all the ethical dairy, uh, companies that do this, but some don't milk their cows more than twice a day. And then some don't milk their cows more than once a day where we access our raw milk. It's not more than once a day. Um, and it is more, um, art. Well, this is also Island living as well. So there's like one, one spot where you go and you get your, your milk from, but Absolutely. We have to think about the question of just like, okay, well, what does that do to the price? I would also like to see what would happen if we had, we've had what a hundred plus years of government funds to, uh, support like monocropping and tilling and, um, you know, the, the cheap production of, of the food that we have today. And I would like to see what would happen if we, as a country or, um, globally tried to try to reverse that, I guess, and go back to more, um, in a way that restores not only obviously like the grazers, the grassland, but restores our health as well, because you're actually treating the soil well and not trying to fight over like, and the livestock's not trying to fight over the same grass. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah, that did. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like the under, I mean, let me know your thoughts on this. The understanding the fundamental components is that cow's milk is for a baby cow. Goat's milk is for a baby goat. Like, human milk is for baby humans like does that at all factor into your decision on if it's a health food or not um well i think that that's why dairy has been so studied and i think that we would find conflicting opinions on like is dairy bad for your hormones is it good for your hormones i know that the dairy the hormones that are in dairy um our bodies produce six thousand times more than what you'd find in a glass of milk and so the impact on our hormones just because it's coming from a cow or a goat um is is questionable if if you're drinking even if you're drinking like a gallon of it today or excuse me a day um as far as it being unnatural just because it is from a cow i think we can use that same logic on a lot of things and that's where we're just going to be kind of like well like cycling. what like what sense? well because if we're really going to use the argument of like our biology getting back to our biology like i mean can it's clear that like cow's milk is for a baby cow like that i feel like that's not that hard like i feel like it'd be really hard to refute that sure like design every mammal on the planet they make milk for their babies. Like, sure. And after we were weaned from our mothers, we don't need it ever again. And the only reason that we've had adapted to where like maybe 30% of people still have the lactase enzymes people digest it is because we have over time used cows to be able to sustain ourselves as we travel across civilizations to make sure we have a, um, a significant calorie source as we settle in new places where we don't know what the food's going to be like. Right. And over time, because we have included it in our diet, that's why we've had that like adaptation. 
But, oh, sorry. But really quick, though. <laughs> I want you to answer this. But I also realized that I never addressed what you said about the ethical parts of dairy. Like, your idea of what could be the possibility, like, is just not possible on a, on a global scale. Like, for the especially for the amount of dairy that people eat. And if you're really talking, like, a gallon of milk a day, like, there's no way that we could feed people that much milk even even like two cups a day that much milk the entire world on that type of farming it's just not possible especially sorry sorry no well what would be your what would be your solution to that my solution is that we don't need to be eating dairy (laughs) so if if i'm I'm just trying to merge here but like if people reduced the amount of dairy that they were eating if dairy wasn't going into absolute junk processed food right Mm -hmm. like any like uh, cheese it's you know yeah. just like if, if it wasn't going and being sold in this mass production way and therefore we're not even like a lot of people are eating things and not even knowing if, that there's dairy in it absolutely and so um i guess if we merge the, the solutions of lowering the mindless dairy consumption um you know what would that look like if we invested our you know money tax dollars into something that could get us a more ethical um way of doing it i guess Right. Well, I think that it's all about supply and demand and education is key. And so that's why we're having conversations like this. And that's why I have like my podcast. That's why I do what I do and why you do what you do for obviously you have your own opinions on why. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, if people start eating less and less dairy and less foods with dairy in it, the demand would shift and people would they would start making products that didn't have dairy in it. And we would start having a higher demand for whole plant foods, hopefully, if more people start eating more whole plant foods. And that's where the supply, the demand, supply and demand happens. And also because we, we I, I hope that our tax dollars wouldn't actually support and fund more types of farmings like that because it isn't sustainable for us. Because vegans, I don't know if you know this, but they, they require far less land than animal food eaters. Like one, what is it? Like one sixteenth of the land a vegan, a, a vegan, oh, sorry, one eighth, I feel like. I wrote it down. Um, vegans only requ- require like one sixth of an acre per year per per person, whereas a not an animal food eater requires eight times that amount, and that doesn't even take into account if you were doing all grass fed, where it would take even more land. Mm-hmm. So we simply, on a number scale, don't have the possibility to feed the world in this idyllic like idyllic way that maybe like sounds better. But and then on top of it, though, could we consider that knowing that that's true, that we could consider maybe we don't need to be needing eating as much of it. So maybe you don't agree with me that we don't need dairy in our diets, but maybe we don't need to be eating near as much as we put it in. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I think um, with the land thing, because that obviously opens up. And again, I'm not an expert on regenerative farming. What I can pull from is watching um, organizations that I really enjoy learning from the savory Institute is one of them. And to this, I just think of the example of what they did with the, um, Maasai, um, in Kenya. So like livestock everywhere, everyone's fighting over the grass. And like I was saying earlier and what they did first off in the soil was, um, severely, uh, depleting and getting unhealthier and unhealthier and unhealthier. And what happened as a result of that is wildlife, you know, wasn't coming back and, and hanging out in this lush. Cause it, actually the rivers weren't even really flowing anymore. And so this ecotourism, is this Maasai, is from what? Maasai. Okay. Maasai. Um, and so ecotourism goes down the health, the funds, and then the prosperity of the entire village is going down. So something that Savory Institute did is, okay, like let's restore community let's take all of the livestock that are all separated let's put them into one concentrated place and then practice um communal grazing patterns and so allowing the grass to rest allowing the grass to rest allowing the grass to rest to mimic predator uh herding basically this is like 101 regenerative farming and i'm probably not uh explaining it well but essentially 
Um, allowing the grass to, to, to rest, getting the livestock in one place, allowing them to fertilize the grass in that place. It restored the health of the soil um, tremendously. Rivers started flowing, wildlife returned. Then the food is more nutrient dense. So not only are they um, not, okay, not only are they, I'm phrasing this wrong, but, but essentially the food that they're eating they need less of because it's more nutrient dense, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, Do you think though, because from what I understand that if they're eating grass, it takes far more time to get them to the weight that they need to be able to be slaughtered. Cows? Yeah. Oh, wait, are you saying, oh, wait, are you saying, maybe we're on the different pages here. Maybe. Okay, wait, Like if you're going to feed them grass, like is that what you're talking about, grass? Right? Yes. Yeah. If you're going to feed them that, then it takes so much more time to get them to a, to a weight to be able to slaughter them. So it takes more energy, more resources, more land to get them to that weight as opposed to doing like factory farm grain. So I, have we talked about like, do you think that I support grain fed cattle? No, I don't okay, think so. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But um, what I'm saying is that you, as much as those things sound idyllic, they're just not possible on the scale that we're talking about on how much meat that is promoted and animal foods that is promoted sure. for the whole world. And then on top of it, I didn't want to cut you off, but I was going to say something about regenerative grazing. So why don't you finish and then I'll say. Oh, and, um, and like all, like everything that you're bringing up, I'm, I'm like, yeah, these are great questions. Like, let's mm-hmm. let, let me definitely look into these things. Um, cause like I said, I'm not an expert on these, but essentially with the, um, with their practices in mind, it's essentially how do we use, how do we use, uh, less land, restore the health of the land. Therefore, like the Messiah, I just think of this cause it was the coolest example of when the wildlife returned because the health of the land re- returned, they were able to open back up ecotourism. And then the funds were going back into the villages, restoring the prosperity, prosperity and of health of the, uh, of them as a whole. And I just thought it was such a beautiful example of, of just not divorcing the of the of the grazer to the grassland and allowing that to happen. Can I ask you a question, a, like a yeah. follow up question on that? Okay, so when you say that vegans or a plant based diet only needs a certain mm-hmm. um, uh, smaller sco- amount of land, amount yeah. of land, what is that? I guess like referring to like what is grown on that land. It's talking, comparing it to everything that is eaten within a year compared to how much land is required for animal foods. Because for animal foods, you also need to take into account the land that it takes to grow the grain that most of the cows are eating versus, or grass fed that requires even more land because they have to eat so much grass to get, to become a big, big cow, to be able to be slaughtered, to feed people. So it requires so much land that if we're really talking about rewilding, the best thing to do is eat more plants and less animal foods because it requires so much less land. And then we can let more areas thrive and rewild that's really like a, a better way to rewild because in like take the amazon forest for instance like 91 percent of amazon destruction comes from animal agriculture and they'll be saying well what about soy well most of that soy is going towards animal feed for sure so i agree if you were to really instead if you were going to try to do that grass fed for cows it'd be the same thing it would take up even more land so if we're really going to consider the best way to rewild our nature, we would be eating more plants and less animal foods because it takes up significantly less less land because we filter up to, we like lose upwards of 60% of the calories by filtering plants through animals first. Then we do just to eat directly, plant, just directly eating plants. So I guess to that, I wonder like what even the solution would be as far as the land and the soil, knowing that from my understanding, regenerative farming practices are kind of our best bet as far as restoring yeah, topsoil. So I agree. And, yeah. I do think that like regenerative farming is arguably better for the soil. But when it, I actually wanted to bring up something, there's a really, the largest meta-analysis, like looking at animal grazing. Um, 
and it was called Grazed and Confused by the Food Climate Research Network, found that despite anecdotal claims, it's still very much a net CO2 emitting practice, even though specific forms of grazing can help sequester CO2 in the oil, the, like the white in the oak, soil. Like the white oak pastures. Yes, one. exactly. Yeah. Like even their own studies showed that they were still net net um, commissioned commissioning from that um, anyway so that that was my main point of that I do think that it obviously is better for the soil than everything we're doing with monocropping and corn and soy so like we're so on the same page there I think the best way for us to find common ground maybe would be if we're really going to talk about planetary health and also we could even consider if you're really talking about like past our ancestors right and how they ate because that's a lot of how you consider how to eat right is mm-hmm, our ancestors mm-hmm. before the processed food industry um, before all the affluence, like we really didn't eat so much animal food. So mm-hmm. if we could consider the planetary aspect and the well, like the, the kindness to the animals to at least cause less harm, if you really believe that we need animals to eat, maybe we don't need as much as we think we do. And as a result, we're going to help the planet and to just eat more plants that way. And do you consider? Yeah. And I, and I wonder in that, do you feel like it is the, I guess the amount of people that is, is the problem? Well, plus everything else that comes with that. But like, um, do you feel like we're at a place where we're at now because of, because of the population? Like, yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of it. But the other part is just the way we've gotten so far away from nature. We don't live in the way that, that our ancestors lived and the way our ancestors lived back before the processed food industry mm-hmm. and grocery stores, we were not eating the amount of animal foods that people are eating today. So it's really easy to be like, Oh, I'm going to eat a lot of dairy. I'm going to eat a lot of this. And I'm just going to stop at my, you know, farm for the dairy, but then everything else I get might be at the grocery store, not taking into account of like if you're really growing your own, like raising your own animals and growing your own food, like the majority of your food is coming from plants. And then the, the, the meat is like the once a week type of thing. And so considering that we could at least be like, maybe we don't need as much as we think. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously I'm still arguing for that. We don't need it at all um, right. to be healthy. If we eat a whole plant foods based diet, and that's not to say that there's going to be 100% health 100% of the time, because I don't think anybody experiences that. I think that's kind of like a a frustrating thing that you and I have, have talked about, you know my feelings about that, how people have sometimes will be like, well, this person had this experience when they were plant-based. And, and I think there's kind of an unfair comparison that like if you're not vegan and you experience an ailment, it's really rare that people are like, it's because you're mm. eating animals. Whereas sure. if you're vegan and you experience an ailment, it's like it must be because you're not eating animals. Sure. So that's obviously a totally different conversation, but I love that you like <laughs> empathize with my frustrations I totally about empathize. that. Yeah, because yeah. she, she just put it in my shoes and she was just like, um, if someone was following your way of eating, it's, it's not a diet. It's more of like a lifestyle shift and yeah. figuring out what works best for you. But if someone took it as a diet and was yeah. like, I tried what you ate, didn't work for me. So I went back to this keto or, or something like that. it made me feel all these terrible things. Yes. I started to deteriorate. Like that would be really frustrating for you. Wouldn't it? <laughs> totally. I would, I would definitely feel a need to, um, to, I would be de- yeah. defensive and right. just like, okay, well that's not really. And I think why that is, and Ellen and I have bonded over this is because what's most important to us and um, kind of the basis of the whole conversation is, well, what is the truth? Well, what is the truth? And like, mm-hmm. we don't want someone to misunderstand um, what we're saying and uh, and twist it and like project it as something else. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like you're, you misunderstood yes. the whole the whole point. It's so easy to do. That's why it's vulnerable to be to be here. It is. Oh my gosh, this has been such a good conversation, though. I think we're doing a pretty good job, like rounding out the conversation, coming to a conclusion. I think a good way to end would be for each of us to just kind of make a statement on like our our overall reasons why we think the way we do, and mm. just kind of end it based on the conversation. Do you like that idea? Yeah. Okay, so I'll go first, and then you can finish. Um, I feel like based on the planetary aspects, the ethical reasons, as well as I think the overwhelming body of evidence that we can eat a plant predominant or plant exclusive diet to be healthy 
shows me why that to me that's good reason why I do live the way I do the lifestyle that I do I think understanding that like um animal agriculture is the leading cause of ocean dead zones um the amount of animal poop manure that comes from animals in the waste runoff into our oceans and lakes um species extinction extinction uh water pollution habitat disruption all that taken into account plus the fact that my um inclination is to um, cause the least amount of harm that is reasonable, reasonably possible, especially knowing that I can be healthy on eating whole plant foods and eating a plant-based diet for myself. To me, that is why I live a vegan lifestyle. Um, because I do think that the overwhelming body of evidence is that, that we should be eating a predominant amount of our calories from whole plant foods. Um, And that could mean, that means like at least 85% of our calories from plants. And that could be a whole other discussion together. Mm -hmm. We could even do a whole conversation on just that topic of like how much, Mm -hmm. right? And and I feel like that evidence there to me is is the reason why I live the way they do. Plus the fact that I've been, you know, living vegan and thriving and raising my healthy four children, um, having four wonderfully healthy vegan pregnancies um, is a testament of why I live the way that I do. So that's my rounding out discussion. I love that. I, I'm trying to think of how to like summarize this all in one thought, but essentially like, I think that people that try to eat, um, animal foods in an ethical or conscious way, again, just using these words, um, have a lot of the same goals as, as, uh, vegans and ethical vegans, maybe not necessarily all of the same health goals, but like being healthy. Absolutely. And we all have different definitions of what, what healthy means. Um, I think having conversations like this is so incredibly important, so incredibly important. So we can get out of our echo chamber, chamber, realize, oh, there might be a problem with this that I haven't thought about before. Where do we go from here? Yes. Where, where can I learn more information about this? Um, and I think that the goal of myself is of course, nourishing the body that, that in a way that I understand, um, how the body thrives and at the, at the, at the place that I'm at in my life, um, that is incorporating, you know, uh, organ meats and, um, shellfish and different types of um, red meats. And I think that, um, and eggs of course, but like, I mean, the list could go on and on as far as the things that we do agree on, like we covered in the beginning of the episode. Um, and so that is the beautiful thing of just like, Hey, like we're all on this journey of trying to figure out what, how, how to thrive, um, and then how to feed our family in the best way possible. This is always like a very, um, touching subject. I think for moms too, cause they're like, I want to do it right. I want totally. to feed, feed my kids. Right. Um, and I think at the end of the day, how can we get back to sustainable practices? And you brought up a lot of great points today that I, um, am just excited to learn more about. Um, like I said, the, I think that the, the movement that has come from the people that created sacred cow is one of the, one of the major ones I lean on as far as, um, information, but I want to broaden my horizons as far as, as far as information. And like I said, that's just why I think it's so important to, to have these kinds of conversations. And I really hope you guys, you guys are encouraged to just see, I guess the, the fruit of what can come from having opposing, you know, conversations, um, opposing viewpoint conversations. Cause a lot of us have the exact same goals at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Honestly, I am 100% agree with you about that. 
the importance of having conversations with people who disagree with you to help understand why people think the way that they do is helpful for your own growth and mindset and helpful in your relationships. And I can honestly say you're becoming one of my best friends Mm -hmm. and I'm so thankful for you and your family and my life. Our children, I don't know if you know, are best friends. (laughs) Koa and Scout are smitten with each other, Mm -hmm. obsessed with their friendship. Like honestly, it's the most beautiful thing. And I'm so thankful to get to know you and your family. We love you so much. I'm like about to cry. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You guys have no idea how like mutual the love is. I mean, the fact that I, that Ellen was at my birth shows you like how intimate our friendship is. And so the, the idea that you can have like a thriving relationship and friendship with somebody who doesn't see eye to eye eye on you on everything is, is it's just a really important, I feel like life realization to have. Totally. Um, how to actually do it, that's something to navigate through for people that it's harder for them to have these these kind of conversations. But I just appreciate you so much and I just really appreciate you uh, like inviting this conversation to happen. Yes, I appreciate you too. Oh, I think this is the perfect way to end it. <laughs> Thank you, Courtney, for being here. <laughs>